You're listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. On today's episode, we taste the rainbow. Life, the Universe, and Everything Else is a program promoting secular humanism and scientific skepticism produced by the Winnipeg Skeptics. You can email your questions, comments, or criticisms to us at podcast at winnipegskeptics.com. Show notes, references, and relevant links can be found at podcast.com or at winnipegskeptics.com slash blog. My name is Jen Newman, and with me today I have Ashlyn Noble. Hello. Lauren Bailey. Hi there. And Mark Forkheim. Hello. It's good to have you with us again, Mark. Yeah, not, nice to be here. It's been a while. We pulled him out of storage. You know. <laughs> <laughs> so on uh, today's episode, we're going to talk all about the senses. At its most basic level, a uh, sense is the ability for an organism to detect and process stimuli. Uh, Typically, we think about this in terms of interacting with the outside world, but senses can also be directed internally. Uh, Aristotle identified five primary senses. I call them the big five. What are they? Earth, wind, fire, air, (laughs) and... Love. Love. (laughs) Your powers combined. I am Captain Planet. <laughs> so we have a sight or vision, we have smell or olfaction, we have taste or gustation, which is closely linked to smell and sometimes considered to be the same sense. Uh, we have hearing or audition, and then we have touch or somatosensation. Wow. Those are some fancy words you got there, Newman. Yeah. Your visual, olfactory, and auditory senses contribute to your hunting skills and natural defenses. Can you think of any other senses that are not in that list? Sense of time passing. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. The sense of Ashlyn staring at the back of my head. <laughs> <laughs> so we have uh, we have uh, temperature, thermoception. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have pain or nociception uh, mm-hmm. from the same root that gives us noxious. Um, balance, which is yes. equilibrioception. Uh, <laughs> oh, you made that one up. <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, we have the kinesthetic sense, uh, proprioception, which is what uh, the sense that tells us where our limbs are mm-hmm. in space and what, your hand and what doing. we're doing. You know, it's how you can uh, touch your nose with your eyes closed. Oh, man, I almost missed. Uh, <laughs> it's how you can like throw and catch a ball without like looking at your hand. You have uh, chemoreceptors uh, in your body that can uh, detect like carbon dioxide levels in your blood. That's that's the sense of I need to take another breath. <laughs> Uh, you have uh, phantasmoception. You know, you you can sense ghosts. Uh, <laughs> That's Bruce Willis' deception. <laughs> yeah. okay. What about ESP? Uh, yeah, okay. So go back and listen to our uh, parapsychology episode. <laughs> so what does and does not qualify as a sense is actually debated. We also talk about, like, somebody mentioned the sense of time, and that's not associated with anything we might refer to as a sensory organ, aside from the brain itself, but it is, Mm -hmm. in some senses, a discrete sense. It is a sense of... It's a knowledge of... It it is a knowledge of the external world. Uh, So between five and 20 different senses have been identified, uh, depending on who's counting. (laughs) But senses aren't as discrete as we might otherwise imagine. So the same type of receptor, uh, a chemoreceptor, for example, might 
provide stimuli from multiple subjective senses, like taste and uh, smell are an example, where they're closely linked. Uh, and those subjective senses themselves might end up overlapping. So try to taste something with your nose plugged, for example, that hampers your sense of taste. And mm-hmm. also um, tasting something while blindfolded. Like <laughs> a, a potato and a peeled piece of apple? The sensation of eating an apple and a potato are actually much more similar than we would otherwise mm-hmm. otherwise imagine. And so when you when you're blindfolded and you can't tell which is which, yeah. <laughs> There's also that great that great Seinfeld bit where, where George is just like Let me just uh, I'm gonna grab an apple. <laughs> you know, George, that's an onion. <laughs> yes it is. Last week Jim came to our house for a book club and walked in and said, smells really good in here. And we said, oh, sorry, that's just the, the wax melts that are scenting the home. I feel lied to. <laughs> and then just now, we offered Laura a cup of tea. She said, I want whatever it smells like in here. <laughs> sorry about that. That is wax. <laughs> so uh, unfortunately, even if you tried to eat the wax, it smells really good, but you'd probably not enjoy that. So we're going to get into that sort of sensory interference a little bit later. But for humans, sight is often thought of as our primary sense, and arguably it is. You know, when predators. When we imagine, you know, walking across a field of tall grass, you're probably imagining a scene, right? How many of you thought of the feeling of the grass on your legs? Maybe not as many as visualized it. And also the smell. And, and the smell of, you know, pollen, maybe the feeling of wind on your skin. S- some of these senses are automatic when you're imagining something, and some of the sensory information might be missing unless you, unless you think about it. So we tend to think of sight as our primary sense. I was about to say we tend to see sight as our primary <laughs> sense, and, and that, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. you know, like that, that's, uh, the, the fact that sight is primary is, uh, you know, I can ask you to visualize something, which means imagine it. Sight is primary in the language. I, I believe also that sight is the sense that uses up the biggest part of our brain. That is very possible. I didn't actually look that up. <laughs> the visual cortex, the map, of yeah. it is it's, it's pretty big. Large. Yeah, and yeah. it's on both There's, sides. Yeah, it's on both spheres. Of, there is a V four left and a V four right, which is some things I'm going to talk about in my segment. So. Mm. We, we do actually have a stronger sense of sight than most mammals uh, and a comparatively weak sense of smell. Mm-hmm. Like dogs. And other animals perceive the world very differently, um, both in terms of uh, you know what sense is their, arguably their primary sense, but also many animals have senses that we simply don't have. So they could sense electrical and magnetic fields in some cases or detect mm-hmm. water pressure and currents on their skin. We typically assume that sensory information needs to be integrated into our consciousness in order to function, but that actually isn't the case. Uh, Have any of you heard of blind sight? Yes. Uh, This is uh, well documented. In some cases, damage to the visual cortex, uh, usually caused by brain lesions, I think, Mm -hmm. uh, can render somebody functionally blind. So they they can't consciously see anything, but they're actually still able to respond to visual stimuli that they're not consciously aware of. So you can stand in front of somebody and say, I'm holding a cane, point to it, and they'll be able to point in in the direction of the cane that you're holding without being able to see it consciously. Wow. Yeah, it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. The brain is super weird. <laughs> like Daniel Kish gets around by human echolocation. 
ever since he was little because he's he's right. blind. Ever since he was little, he started clicking. Huh. And it would, so he's used this echolocation for his entire life, and he's trying to teach it to people. Yeah. And of course, there's a whole bunch of controversies about it. You can look him up. There's a lot of really great <laughs> uh, biographies written about him. The brain is highly plastic, so it's possible that for some people, their visual cortex may end up being used for different non-visual purposes. Let's talk about how the senses work briefly. Does anyone here know what a transducer is? Only in mm. the Rocky Horror Picture Show. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> this sonic transducer, it is, I suppose, some kind of audio, vibratory, physiomolecular transport device? You mean? Yes, Brad. It's something we ourselves have been working on for quite some time. I'm sorry. <laughs> so it's an engineering term. Uh, a transducer is a component of a system that converts a signal from one type of energy to another. For example, a radio has a radioacoustic transducer that converts radio frequency electromagnetic radiation into electrical impulses, which are in turn converted into the physical vibrations in the air that we call sound. Your sensory system can also be thought of as a set of transducers, converting information from the physical world into electrical activity in your nervous system, where we can then interpret this information either consciously or not. Our internal model of the world is created and maintained by this sensory information. The sensory nervous system, uh, so the part of our nervous system responsible for sensory information, is made up of the vision system for sight, the auditory system for hearing, somatic system for touch, the gustatory system for taste, the olfactory system for smell, the vestibular system for senses relating to balance and movement, um, and a, a few other systems that are less well, um, less well recognized. Um, and each of these systems in turn is made up of sensory receptors, neural pathways, uh, and then the parts of the brain involved in sensory perception, some of which end up overlapping with each other. Before we move on, let's take a closer look at pain. Many people imagine that pain is part of the sense of touch, but we actually have separate receptors for pain called nociceptors, uh, and uh, pain can actually be sensed in some cases in places where we don't have a sense of touch. Nociceptors are the sensory receptors that are triggered, uh, meaning they send signals to the spinal cord, uh, when exposed to stimuli that are potentially damaging. That stimulus is typically perceived as pain. So we have thermal nociception, so uh, when heat or cold levels reach a threshold sufficient to cause potential damage, those will be triggered. Uh, we have mechanical nociception, so that's when uh, we feel pressure or deformation in parts of the body that could potentially cause damage. You know, when you, when you whack your leg really hard, you know, that's, that's mechanical nociception. And we also have chemical nociception. Uh, that's when uh, we encounter chemical compounds that could potentially be damaging, like uh, somebody splashes acid in your face, for example. Some nociceptors respond at thresholds uh, before damage would actually occur. So that's like when, you know, if something's getting hot, uh, you might uh, start feeling pain before you're actually damaging yourself. But other nociceptors, which are called sleeping nociceptors, only trigger when actual damage occurs. So that's the severe pain, you know, when, you know, something... If you, if you get stabbed or something. And then there was that episode of House where the girl couldn't feel pain at all. She oh, had no nociceptors. That's a terrifying condition. I know. Uh, I can't remember the name of the condition. All I could think of it was on, it was on House. <laughs> congenital insensitivity to pain or congenital analgesia. And uh, it is a terrifying condition that some people suffer from, uh, and it makes it very difficult to live in the world. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
So from what I can tell, uh, chemical and thermal nociceptors actually have overlapping functions in a lot of cases. For example, um, TRPV1, also known as the capsaicin receptor, is the protein that binds to capsaicin and allows us to sense spiciness in food. But it is also involved in detection and regulation of body temperature and serves to provide the sensation of scalding heat as well. Mm. This makes sense because I eat a lot of hot peppers and I can't really, like I don't feel the spicy as much as most people. Mm -hmm. Like I can sit there and pound back the scotch bonnets <laughs> like nobody's business. I don't feel them until later. <laughs> but my, also my, my body temperature, I'm like, whatever, it doesn't bug me as much as it bugs other people. So this makes sense. I, uh, I I love spicy food, but it's not it's not it's not the TRPV one that's the problem. Uh, it is oh my stomach lining. <laughs> I'm getting old. <laughs> So, uh, speaking of tasting spicy hot peppers, uh, Mark, why don't you tell us all about tongue maps and how scientifically accurate they are? <laughs> well, for centuries, they recognized basically four different tastes. Sweet, sour, bitter, and salt. Um, at some point uh, around 1875, one person, A. Hoffman, uh, decided that the center of the tongue has virtually no taste buds, which is incorrect. <laughs> and said that the tastes were detected around the edge of the tongue. Did they have any evidence for that? Yeah, I'm not sure where they got the evidence for that from. Uh, it could be they weren't uh, looking close enough or they were mistaking certain forms of taste buds for other ones. Basically, when you're, you're there's three different types of tongue papillae. One is the fungiform papillae, which contain the taste buds. They're shaped like little mushrooms. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Story checks out so far. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There's also the filiform papillae, which do not contain taste buds. They just add roughness to the tongue. And in cats, that's what yeah. gives them the hooks on the tongue so they can shred meat. So filiform would be like thread-like? Yeah. They have little fingers. One thing with them is that they can also, the fingers can be out or they can be curled in. The filiform papillae is the most common. We have the most of them. Mm. Oh, now apparently there's four types. Circumvallate, fungiform, filiform, and foliate. All except filiform papillae are associated with taste buds. Hmm. There's about 2,000 to 5,000 taste buds on our tongue. And each one of those taste buds has hundreds of receptors for chemicals. The traditional four tastes, uh, again... Uh, and A. Hoffman in 1875 decided that the center of the tongue didn't really have enough taste buds to make a difference. And the sense of taste was around the edge of the tongue. So that was one thing that led up to the uh, tongue map. Next, a paper in 1901, a German paper. This uh, researcher, he did a test with his friends. Very scientific. How many friends? What was the sample size? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Bigger than Wakefield. <laughs> Well, if N is bigger than four, it's going to be better than our experiments later. Yeah. <laughs> he, he took uh, solutions of the different tastes and tested it on their tongue. What he found was that the entire tongue was really sensitive to all the tastes, but certain areas seemed to be slightly more sensitive to tastes than others. And this is what he put down in his paper in 1901. And he didn't really write it very well. And I guess it didn't translate very well. Later, 
psychologist Edwin G. Boring. (laughs) (laughs) That's his name. That's pretty good. He reinterpreted the paper. And in his reinterpretation, he gave specific areas. He didn't just make it slightly more sensitive. He made it, that's the only place where it's sensitive. So you you taste sweet things here, you taste salty things there. I remember learning that in grade school. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That sounds and it's, like a grade school error in you know, <laughs> yeah. taking a paper and writing an analysis of it. Yeah. yeah. Here's where you taste sweet. Here's and of course the tastes salty. were all around the edge of the tongue. Mm-hmm. Sweet being at the very tip of the tongue. Next back is uh, salt. After that is sour. And then at the very back of the tongue is bitter. Mm-hmm. Th- this continued for quite a long time. Until 1974, Virginia Collings decided to reinvestigate the topic and discovered that you can taste anything anywhere on the tongue. Yeah, because there's no, there's no spot for umami on the... Uh, yes, <laughs> that's, that's another thing. Uh, the researchers who did these tastes were going on traditional tastes and they're Eurocentric and they didn't have uh, the Asian factor in there. And that's where umami comes from. It was, uh, it was a Japanese researcher. But I mean, yeah. we can all taste... Savory thing. Yeah. Yeah. I find it interesting that if they figured this out in, what did you say, 1974, that it was wrong, how come yeah. I still learned it in high school? Oh, like school curriculum. Yeah. yeah. Like far behind school the School curriculum yeah. so far behind the times, yeah. It's interesting because when you Google umami, they have the tongue map, mm-hmm. but now umami is shown in the center of the tongue. <laughs> like, well, we have a whole bunch of empty space. We'll just throw umami right there. Clearly, this is where it goes. Yeah. <laughs> Does anybody else remember the first time they heard the word umami? I, I think I assumed it was just ooh, a type of sushi. <laughs> unagi. <laughs> That's unagi, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, it was, what is this word? And why is it in all of the adverts now and everything? It was discovered in Japan in 1908, this separate flavor. But because of translation issues and... Racism. Yes. It wasn't introduced into Western culture until uh, much later. In other words, white people have no taste. another taste that has been coming up in research has been the taste of fat Mm -hmm. now it's hotly debated because it doesn't so much produce a psychological response as it does a physiological response there are there are receptors on the taste buds that will detect fatty acids and get the body getting ready to digest fat oh interesting so the body recognizes there's fat in the mouth because mm-hmm. of taste buds, but there's still a debate as to whether it produces any sort of individual taste. A lot of the taste of fat tends to be textural, mm. creamy sense. Deliciousness. <laughs> Speaking of senses overlapping, uh, Lauren, why don't you tell us all about synesthesia? I'd love to, Jim. So we're not really sure what causes synesthesia, which I'm going to get into in a bit later, but it is a really awesome neural difference. So synesthesia, the term, is from the Greek syn, for together, and esthesis, for the senses. So it's literally senses together. Sinning together? Do we get to sin together? In a small percent of the population, about 4.4%, the triggering of one sense also triggers another. So this is the senses together. The most common form of synesthesia is graphene color. So a grapheme is either a letter or a number. And this is where people see letters and numbers as specific colors. 
some of the most common ones that people will have the same are the letter A is red, the letter O is white, that kind of thing. So I wonder for those people when they see those fridge magnets that you give kids, they're like, oh, that B is the wrong color again. <laughs> some do. And I mean, some have, uh, it's a... I don't know, A is always red in those things anyway, so... Yeah. Well, A is number one. A is sometimes A is sometimes blue, though, and that, that does strike me as wrong, but I think that's just because I'm used to the A being red. <laughs> well, I think one of the theories about synesthesia is that a lot of the associations people make are actually because of those fridge magnets. Yeah, that's... <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> I thought you were actually, like, trying to lead into that. Nope. nope. <laughs> that type of, um, of thinking is ideasthesia, and I'm going to get into that in a little bit. So only a fraction of types of synesthesia have been evaluated by credible scientific research. There's just so many of them. Has there been any done by incredible? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> this is all pretty incredible, Ashlyn. So awareness of synesthetic perceptions varies from person to person. I have a very mild form that I didn't realize was a version of synesthesia until I was well into my 20s. But it had been occurring since I was very little. Are you going to tell us what it is or is it a secret? I'm going to tell you. Let me get there. <laughs> there are two overarching types of synesthesia. There's projective and associative. Projective synesthesia causes people, if they have, say if they have chromesthesia, if they hear a sound, they see a color. So if it's projective, you'll actually like see the color appear before you, or the, the world will sort of tinge with that color. Mm. Uh, but if you have associative, you'll just think of that color. So say the sound of a trumpet is orange to you. Projective people will actually see orange when they hear a trumpet, and associative synesthetes will just think of the color orange. The first one sounds really distracting. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, I guess you would be used to it if it was happening your whole life, but it still sounds really distracting. Yeah, he hasn't said which one he is, but Kanye West apparently sees color when he yeah. hears sound. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's, uh, he came up in my research. <laughs> you find it with a lot of artistic people. Yeah. There's a lot of uh, senses overlap, and, that, and it works with people who work with their senses more. Yeah. So associative synesthesia folks associate certain triggers with certain cross-sense characteristics. So I've got an example. Uh, my mother and I weirdly had the exact same trigger at the exact same time. This was before either of us had heard of the word synesthesia. We were in the JCPenney's in Miller Hill Mall in the early 1990s. That's in Duluth. <laughs> <laughs> and we walked by a sales clerk offering perfume samples. When we smelled the perfume on offer, we both looked at each other and said, that smells purple. <laughs> and the bottle was clear, the liquid was that tawny color that most perfumes are, and the packaging was white, but the smell was purple. It wasn't like a smell of grapes or anything else that mm. we associate with the color purple. It wasn't blueberries or anything. And it and wasn't David Tennant. No. That was absolutely tremendous. I thought I was good. <laughs> Very funny. Jessica Jones is a great show. Yes. Now I'm creeped out. Yeah, well, that's fair. So it was, it was a stuffy and sort of cloying smell, like an old lady's sachet, but it didn't smell like lavender. It just smelled purple. Hmm. And neither of us can remember to this day what type of perfume it was or what the name of it was, but we just call it that purple perfume. And we had this moment of, it's that purple perfume. Huh. When I was a kid, I always associated uh, people with colors. Yeah. You know, I'm not claiming that synesthesia or anything, but I was always like, oh, that's a, that, that person is purple, that person is orange. Yeah. This person is yellow. That is a form of synesthesia. Oh. So yeah. some people will say that they see auras, but really it's a sort of color synesthesia. Oh, yeah, mine is definitely not projective at all. No. <laughs> no, but again, okay. there's projective and associative for each type of synesthesia. So what causes synesthesia? Lysergic acid. I talk about that in a okay. bit. <laughs> Quit jumping the gun. Yeah. 
Is it as from my example with my mother? Is it genetic? No, I have. I didn't find anything that linked to it being a genetic issue in my in any of my research. But there's not a lot that that we know about it. So it could have a genetic component. Despite knowing of this neural phenomenon since the time of ancient Greece, no definitive answers have been readily, are readily available. A major possibility is cross-wiring between the different areas of the brain responsible for different senses. For example, the most prevalent type of synesthesia, as I mentioned before, is grapheme color. And the area in your visual cortex responsible for recognizing graphemes is right beside V4, which is where your brain processes color information. Mm-hmm. So they're sitting right together, and I guess our listeners really can't see me putting my fingers on the side of my head. <laughs> but you have them on each side of the brain, both on the left and the right. They're just back and a little bit above the ear. That's where your V4 is located. Everybody poke your head. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love when people follow my instructions for no reason. <laughs> Alternatively, because some people can develop synesthetic traits... After a brain trauma, stroke, temporal lobe epilepsy, or a tumor, another theory is that areas of the brain pick up the slack for other areas that may be damaged or falling behind. This may also be why the use of LSD or other psychedelics (laughs) temporarily induce synesthesia. Because one area of your brain has just gone, nope, I'm out. And another one goes, oh, look at the pretty colors. (laughs) So a final theory that I'll touch on is ideasthesia. We talked about that a little bit before, the learned behavior. Ideasthesia posits that concepts evoke perception-like experiences. So the meaning of the stimulus triggers the brain reaction. If, when you think of the word orange, your brain associates it with the taste of the fruit over time. If you think of orange as the fruit, then you think of the color and you think of the taste of the fruit. So that's you sort of form these bonds in your brain about how it works. A study done with grapheme color synesthetes used a different alphabet than the one that they were used to, but after they were taught it, what they were transliterating each letter to, the new symbols for the concept took on the same colors as the previously known ones. So in this study, they used the glagolithic letters for the Latin letters, and glagolithic letters were used uh, in the Byzantine Empire. But still, the one that they would translate to A was red for the A equals red synesthetes. So one form of ideasthesia that has become almost a meme in the traditional sense, and this is one that I was thinking of earlier, is where all capital letters is seen as yelling, so you hear them as yelling in your head. So if you've typed something on the internet, Mm -hmm. this is the one I was thinking, they're like, I haven't seen this anywhere, but people who read things on the internet, you can hear it in yelling. Yeah. So that one's not proven, that's just my idea, but I think it's right. (laughs) (laughs) So as I said before, there are multiple types of synesthesia. Besides the common ones that are mentioned above, there are ones like uh, spatial sequence, where someone will see numbers as a point in space. Uh, Think of it as having a clock around you. So 12 is always in front of you, or however Mm. your body decides to interpret it. You have number form, where there is a map of numbers that appear when the person thinks of numbers. So I've got a slight form of this. My grade four teacher would always scold me that the answers aren't on the ceiling, Lauren, during math class, but they really were. (laughs) I still look up when I'm doing mental math. So if you see me, I'm like, nine times three, and there it is written on the ceiling. Another form of synesthesia is auditory tactile, where you can experience hearing certain words like touches on the body. Ordinal personification. So this is another one that I have. It's you give numbers and letters personalities. So this is the one that I didn't realize was a form of synesthesia until I was in my 20s. 
I thought that everybody made up little characters for their clock numbers. So that would be associated with the individual uh, number graphemes, or uh, yeah. would 12 have its own personality, or would that be a 1 and a 2? Depends on the person. What about Roman numerals? <laughs> I don't know. That uh, the Roman numerals would... don't affect me. Yeah, it might um, be like the thing where if you learn a different language, you still associate a... Mm. Red, mm-hmm. whatever A is in that language. But Roman numerals don't do this for me. It's just mm-hmm. the Arabic number. So for me, even numbers and vowels are female, and odd numbers and consonants are male. For people with more extreme forms, each ordinal can have its own personality, like the number three could be a grumpy old man with a mustache or something. Sounds like a Sesame Street character. Like yeah, basically. personification <laughs> of these numbers. See, that's another thing, because you get like, if you remember the Muppets, where they would have the L's or the R's or the threes or something running around mm-hmm. with like little googly eyes. Oh, yeah. So I don't know if maybe that contributes, like Ashwin was saying earlier, about how the letters on the fridge contributed to the colors. Maybe mm-hmm. the anthropomorphic letters and numbers on shows like Sesame Street had something to do with this. Yeah. The last one I'll touch on on this list, it's a very rare, and to me it's kind of creepy, form of synesthesia is mirror touch. Say you see someone get touched on the elbow, and you feel a touch on your elbow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've heard that as well. It's like sort of an extreme empathy thing. Yeah, so imagine that all the time. Every time you see somebody get touched, you feel that same sense of touch wow. on your body. When you, when you describe that, like I, I just remember when I was a kid, when I would get a sensation like on one side of my body, like mm-hmm. if somebody would tap me on my left side, I would have to like touch my right side. But that thinking back, that's probably my OCD coming up. <laughs> I, that, I think that is more yeah. OCD. Yeah, Sounds like a classic symptom. Yeah. <laughs> As Ashwin had said, people with this type of synesthesia have been shown to have much higher empathy levels compared to the general population. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> So this may be... Is that just because they're like, no, don't hit him? (laughs) No, they can identify with somebody much more easily. I don't have this, but I have really high empathy due to my BPD. And it's very interesting. The empathy may be related to the so-called mirror neurons present in the motor areas of the brain, which have also been linked to empathy. Hmm. I didn't get a chance to research into mirror neurons, but those sound really awesome. And I kind of want to play with them. Not actually reach into your brain and pull out the mirror. <laughs> like massaging somebody's open brain. Yeah. Oh, that would be cool. <laughs> so the list of different types of synesthesia goes on. There's basically any type of cross-wiring you can do between senses. There is a type of synesthesia for it. A lot mm-hmm. of them haven't been studied in depth at all. Some people hear words and taste flavors. Some people see personalities as colors or people as colors. Like Jem, you were saying earlier. Do you still do that or have you grown out of it? I think I've grown out of it. Uh, I, I was under the impression that synesthesia was was something that some people did grow out of. Uh, I don't know if this was true synesthesia or, or whatever, but I, I don't think that I do that anymore. As our brains change and develop, they change and develop. So. <laughs> sure. so synesthesia has been associated with artists and artistic abilities since the time of ancient Greece. Uh, several modern artists use their personal synesthesia to bring senses together for the audience in visual art, music, and writing. Uh, As Mark was saying earlier about Kanye West saying he's got synesthesia. That's what he claims. I'm not anyone to say you don't have it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And when you say that, artists have that cross-wiring because, you know, some of the stuff they do is just mind-boggling when you look at it and it makes sense that they would have it. Um, I didn't write down the names of any of the artists that were listed in the Wikipedia article, but there's uh, some photographers who wait until they actually get a synesthetic uh, feeling before they, and then they take a picture when they have that feeling. So they know like this is what this made me feel. 
I was speaking to our renter who lives downstairs just before you guys came over to record, and mm. he has grapheme color synesthesia. Right. Um, some of his associations match the most common, like A is red, for instance, but some don't. To him, O is yellow. Most reported incidents have O being white. So he is a visual artist, and color and aesthetics have a very important meaning to him. And mm. he works a lot with color and different kinds of color theories. A picture on the Wikipedia page for synesthesia where they show what colors and letters are and stuff made him recoil in horror. Yeah. <laughs> wrong. Yeah. That is the wrong color. So misophonia is a neurological disorder where negative experiences are triggered by specific sounds. And we think Ashlyn may have something like this. As we've been talking tonight, we've been making her recoil a little bit. I have very strong negative reactions to things like sounds of people eating, especially is a big one for me, or being breathed on. I think we've talked about before the um, those dog food commercials where you see the the dog like eating the chow, and it's like really like he's uh, getting in there. Like that that makes me feel very mm-hmm. uncomfortable. <laughs> so some researchers suggest that misophonia is related to, or perhaps a variety of synesthesia that they haven't studied. Some have compared misophonia to synesthesia in terms of connectivity between different brain regions, as well as certain specific symptoms. So the hypothesis that Mirren Edelstein and her colleagues have uh, created is a pathological distortion of connections between the auditory cortex and limbic structures could cause a form of sound emotion synesthesia. So that's a little freaky. Yeah. So although it is a neurological condition, synesthesia has not been listed in the DSM or the International Classification because most people with the condition don't report major adverse interactions with daily living. Some folks see it as a benefit. Color sound synesthesia can give people perfect pitch due to their associations. If they see blue out of the corner of their eye when they hear a note, they're like, oh, that must be C. Or C sharp is green. So I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. It, it can help people be really good at math. Yep. Doing complex mathematics. That, that is one of the tests that they do, especially for graphene color, uh, because I didn't get into how you test or diagnose someone with synesthesia. Mm-hmm. As I was saying, none of my synesthesias have been diagnosed or proven. It's just, hey, that's something that my brain does. So, One of the coolest ones that I've ever heard of was a guy who uh, saw complete 3D colored shapes whenever he thought of numbers and letters. And so a researcher wanted to study him and he, they had him with plasticine make these forms, whatever he saw in his mind when he thought of A and B and so on. I don't remember how long later, but it was like a significant amount of time later, they brought him in and had him do it again. And uh, I guess they, were, they wanted to see if it was a, a constant thing or if it changed over time, and they were like remarkably similar. So <laughs> I thought that was really cool. Because, I mean, it's, it's hard for me to wrap my brain around this sometimes that... You know, A is always red, or O is always, you know, a, an octagonal yellow thing. <laughs> but uh, to see that constancy over time was really interesting. So one of the types of tests that scientists do for synesthesia is called the booba-kiki effect. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Yeah, no, no, that's, that's, that's a real thing. I, yeah. I came across that in my research, too. It was designed by Wolfgang Kohler, 
and people were asked to choose which of two shapes is named Booba and which Kiki. 95 to 98% of people choose Kiki for the angular shape mm. and Booba for the rounded one. Yep. No, I have heard of that right. one. Yeah, yeah. and I've, that seemed extremely obvious to me. When yeah, I heard yeah. Well, <laughs> Kiki sounds yeah. very angular and Booba sounds very round. Ra- but children as young as, as two years old who can't read yet are even associating the Booba with the rounded and the Kiki with the with the. So it's not angular. just the shapes of the letters. That we no, yeah. it is the shapes of the sound. Um, people who were on the autism spectrum did not have that 95-5. It was kind of 50-50 what they would end up. Hmm. That is cool. So, Ashlyn, why don't you tell us all about how those Greek synesthetes couldn't associate the color blue with anything? So there's a theory out there that over time different cultures will develop the words for things in a certain order. They will usually start by differentiating sort of light and dark, uh, so black and white, and then they will add colors in a predictable fashion. So I believe the next one is red, because, you know, there's it's a, it's a very different color than most of the things around. Blood is red, things like that. And the last one to be added is almost always blue. Uh, But we look around us and we see all kinds of blue things in nature. I mean, the whole sky overhead is blue. So what gives? Famously, uh, ancient Greek didn't have a word for blue. The word for blue in modern Greek is is modern. Uh, And so Homer described the sea as the wine dark sea. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One of the theories uh, is that people would come up with a word for blue around the same time they came up with a dye that made a blue color, a dye or a paint. Mm. And so Egyptians came up with the word blue faster than a lot of other places uh, because they were super into uh, the color blue and putting things like lapis and uh, they had a, it's a special, it's called Egyptian blue. I don't actually know what the mineral is. (laughs) That's uh, that's very special and important in, in that culture. The Viking Age Norse didn't have a, a word for blue either. The word Blair could also mean black. Also, there was um, a much bigger range of what a color would be. So uh, again, in the ancient Norse, their word for red sort of covered everything from the deepest red all the way into yellow. Mm -hmm. So gold was red and the sun was red. And we can see that in a lot of the old sagas and poems and stuff. And so um, one of the questions then is... Could ancient people see the color blue? <laughs> Was it different enough for them to to categorize it in that way? A philosopher of the ancient world, Xenophanes, uh, described the rainbow as having only three bands of color, for example. Porphyra, which is like a dark purple, chloros, and erythros. And erythros is like a red. So you have your, 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 your bands on either side, you know, red on one end of the spectrum, purple on the other end of the spectrum and in between everything is called chloros which would be like color yeah oh that's so wild (laughs) to think about the rainbow having three colors that's wrong (laughs) it has exactly seven (laughs) (laughs) and then you get like the the color of space the lovecraft story and he's like it's a color that's never been seen on earth i've never been able to like picture it because you can't picture a color that's not Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, and what's the one in Discworld? Octarine. Octarine, yeah. Octarine. An... Yeah, the eighth color. <laughs> but but the rainbow is actually an interesting example, because when you look at it, it is it, there aren't seven individual yeah, bands. Yeah, it's a blend. It all, it all fades into each other. We could arbitrarily yeah. decide there are ten or mm-hmm. fourteen or... 
I guess three. Indigo three, exists. Three seems pretty low. But. <laughs> no more, no less. There's a, a test that they have done on um, uh, people who do not have a word for blue in their language yet that I just find absolutely mind-blowing. So they have a series of squares that are arranged on a screen and all of them are green except for one, which is blue. Like to us, mm-hmm. I've seen the test is very, very clearly blue. It's <laughs> very different from the other squares. And they ask these people who do not have a color for blue, which one of these squares is different. And it takes them a long time. They cannot immediately pick out this one. And many of them, after a while, will say, probably this one. And they yeah. tend to be right. But it, it's not an instant thing. You'd think it would be something like different shades. Because we have one, I mean, we have multiple words for blue. There's blue <laughs> and there's cyan. You can mm-hmm. say cerulean and azure and whatever. Uh, but I, maybe English is really good for this because we borrow so many other people's words for blue. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, because blue is like the core concept, describing shades, I guess maybe having a distinct word for something that's closer makes that easier. Okay, but then there's another test where they take, uh, they, they found a people who have, I believe it's more colors for green than we have. Mm-hmm. So a subset of colors of green for them are a totally different color. And they do the same thing, arrange a series of squares, and to me, they said, which one of these is different? I had no idea. And apparently it's very clear to the people who have that word. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it like it makes my brain explode to think about it. <laughs> I read an article about the parents consciously didn't che- teach the word blue Yeah, to it was a daughter. podcast episode I showed you, actually. <laughs> okay, that's that. <laughs> but I also read an article about it afterwards. Okay. It's funny how you said showed when, uh, yes, obviously. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so they waited until the daughter was almost school age, because you can't hold it back that long. And the dad asked her, what color is the sky? And it didn't make, make sense. Like, there was no... Yeah, she looked up and, and thought about it for a while and finally yeah. was like, white? <laughs> and he made sure he did it on, an, on a very clear blue day, not like an overcast Winnipeg day. Mm-hmm. So that's arguably unethical. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> to be very generous to that father. <laughs> But uh, there are there are lots of well-documented cases of this sort of thing. Like in ancient Japanese, for example, they used the same word for like what we would call blue and green. Mm-hmm. It had the one word, ao. And I think even in modern Japanese, uh, a tree that, that's very green is described as like very blue. You know, this mm. lush green color is very blue. It's not just blue, it's very blue. That's it's such a cool thing, and it's so hard to think about, like, how many shades of color am I missing? Yeah, uh, <laughs> like, other people's perceptions are really hard to access. and mm-hmm. it's... This phenomenon is part of our everyday culture, in the Western world even. It's a long-running joke about how men take a look at paint samples and, oh, that's purple, and women tend to take a look, oh, no, that's fuchsia, that's this shade, that's... Or yes. <laughs> yeah, I actually, I really like, I know it's very gender essentialist, but the, the graph that shows the, the color chart on one side with the female brain and the color chart on the other side <laughs> with the male brain is pretty funny. <laughs> it, well, and it is, I think, fairly well documented that men are more likely to be colorblind mm-hmm. than, than women. Because it's, it's an excellent like, trait. Yeah. yeah. Have you 10%. seen the, the adverts for the type of glasses that correct the red-green colorblindness? And people put them on... And like you can see color for the first time. Yeah, and people are 
crying. And How could that even... I don't know. It's magic. One guy <laughs> looks at them and then he, he looks at his wife and says, is this what you see all the time? <laughs> and it breaks my heart every time I see the advert. Oh, But yes, those exist. All of our senses are such a spectrum and trying to figure out what other people are seeing is very difficult. Uh, I mean, there's always the logic problem. How do you describe the color purple to someone who has never seen it or who cannot see? It's the color of grapes. So that means nothing to you. (laughs) Another aspect of this is color constancy. The fact that depending on the light source or the background or a number of other factors, the color that is on uh, your screen of your smartphone could be completely different than what it would look like in real life. So uh, the classic example is the dress, right? The the yes. black and blue dress or the white and oh, gold dress. Yeah. Well, even before that, I, I was familiar with... It's an image that has a black and gray grid, like a chessboard sort of deal, and it has uh, two pieces on it. And right. they say, you know, these are the same color as as each other and they look totally different one yeah. looks gray and one looks black one of the pieces is in in the shadow of something else exactly right? yeah. yeah so your your brain is subconsciously correcting for the shadow which mm-hmm. makes it appear a different shade yeah and i went as far as like the and this was the challenge right as i opened it up in my copy of photoshop elements and used the little eyedropper tool and and it was like holy crap this is not a scam <laughs> yeah when we were preparing for this episode uh i i sent everybody a, a picture of strawberries mm-hmm. that were in like uh the light in the room was kind of bluish, but there were clearly red strawberries, and everybody was looking at this red strawberries, and I'm like, there's no red pixels in that picture, yeah. that it's all blue, gray, green, and mm. it looks red when you look at it. Have you seen this picture, Mark? It's been going around the internet lately, yeah. yeah. If you pick out the pixels, everything's just sort of grayish and gross, but... <laughs> well, and I think it really helps in this case, too, that we expect strawberries to be red. Yeah. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. And in fact... If you kind of zoom uh, in really far, you mm-hmm. can see that it's not red. Yeah. And if you just kind of, if you zoom out really far and you and you can't identify that they are strawberries, it doesn't look red anymore. Interesting. Yeah. Is that because it would be in on like a white background though, once you zoom out that far? Well, at that point, you can't tell what the background, well, I, we should explain how this color constancy works, yeah. <laughs> but you can't tell what the context of the picture is. Right. So the definition of color constancy is that a color is perceived as the same color under different lighting conditions. This helps in object identification and prevents confusion. And I'm just reading Laura's research right now, since she couldn't be on the show today. (laughs) So forgive me if I stumble a bit. Uh, (laughs) For our listeners, and maybe I should mention this off the top, Laura is here with us, but she's lost her voice. That's why she's not on the podcast today. (laughs) That's why Ashlyn was reading her segment. (laughs) Uh, The perceived color of an object or surface stays the same, even if the color spectrum of the light changes. So something that is green looks green in both bright sunlight outside, which is more white, and dusk, which is a very red light. So we need that context in order for our brains to appropriately filter the image and tell us what color something is. So the example is you, you expect a banana to be yellow both inside and outside. So Dave has actually changed all of the light bulbs in our house. <laughs> He's tried <laughs> to anyway to the daylight bulbs because he really prefers them. Right. But in most right. houses, the... Uh, inside light is very different from the outside light. It's very yellowish, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And so uh, that's why, like, makeup mirrors will have special lights and everything, so you don't look completely ridiculous when you go outside. <laughs> I do anyway. I step out the door, my makeup goes bleh. <laughs> There's also uh, kinds of glass that will actually change color depending on 
uh, whether you're under fluorescent lights or whether you're under sunlight. So that stuff is fun to play with. Yeah. Also, the camera settings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you take pictures, indoor, outdoor. White balance, yep. yeah. Yeah. Outdoor light is 5,200 degrees Kelvin. Normal indoor light is 3,600 degrees Kelvin. <laughs> that is one of the only things I remember from my television and radio degree. <laughs> Objects have the same pigments regardless of light source, but light sources are not always neutral. Uh, a red apple skin can look different shades of red under a bright blue sky or a cloudy sky or under fluorescent lights. And the plate of strawberries. Uh, there are no red pixels, but the berries still appear red. There are two factors that affect this illusion, according to this research. <laughs> according to Laura. <laughs> the light source appears blue, so the brain filters out the extra blue components of the picture. The berries should appear grayscale, but because of the blue filtering, they appear more red. So the background of the picture is blue, so we assume whatever light is on the picture is a blue light. Uh, we know strawberries to be red. This is a strong assumption. It's rare to see a strawberry that is not red. So we expect to see red berries, and that encourages the blue filtering of the image as well. And then... The one that rocked the internet in 2015 was the dress. So, did everybody see the dress? Yes. Yes. Yeah. What was your initial assumption of the color of the dress? I think it was blue and black. Mm -hmm. My first reaction was blue and gold, and I'm the mm -hmm. only person. I, I still see it as blue and gold. Mm -hmm. Looking at it again, I'd say, yeah, I thought blue and brown. Mm. Yeah, no, I, def I definitely see blue and black or blue and like a bronzy Mm -hmm. Like a dark brown. I thought it was. Yeah. I thought it was blue and black. And I'm all I could think of when when Laura. I don't know if you could hear her with the microphone <laughs> when she said blue and gold. Is I'm like you're just watching way too many bombers games, girl. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so for me, uh, the first thing that I saw was definitely uh, blue and black. I thought for sure you guys are making a big deal out of this for nothing. <laughs> and I had actually seen it right before I went to bed. So I turned off my phone, went to sleep, woke up in the morning, and it was the opposite. <laughs> I woke up and it was clearly white and gold. It was 100% different and it freaked me out. <laughs> this picture was uh, taken in sort of ambiguous lighting. The angle and the way that it was cropped contributed to the fact that different people filtered out different parts of the light and saw the dress as different colors. Do you guys remember um, the reveal when it was shown what color the dress actually was? Uh, I don't. It's a white and gold dress. <laughs> Is it really? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. So if you were to take out a portion of the dress, so if you just sliced the those pixels out of the photo and printed them out, um, and you laid it on a neutral background, people will interpret the color differently than if it was part of the whole picture. Another way that a lot of people I know got it to sort of switch in their mind was just to take their laptop screens and tilt oh. it. Flip it, yeah. Yeah, so that you could see it change. So it was kind of a cool illusion that showed <laughs> us that our senses are not to be trusted. Color perception is very subjective. Mm -hmm. Like, I look... Yeah. What color is my hair? Ginger? Yeah. Sort of a red blonde. I look in the mirror and I see, like blonde hair like like very yellow hair mm -hmm. and that is probably in large part due to the fact that when i was much younger my hair was like platinum blonde like mm. a like a white draco malfoy type okay. white blonde and it has darkened over time and my beard like is definitely more red mm -hmm. uh, you know it's not as red as my brother's but but i look in the mirror and i still have that like that self-perception that i am blonde mm -hmm. that i am like yellow haired and uh, that is not what other people see apparently i saw an article today that uh, 
just made me think of it. The headline was the incredible scientific reason your husband has red in his beard. <laughs> Not the reason that some men have red in it, specifically your husband. <laughs> um, and apparently it's because you have Irish genes. Uh, yeah, it was less, less fantastic than I expected. Mind blown. It explains to have red hair, you need two copies of the gene that produces red hair. One comes from mom, one comes from your dad. However, to have a red beard, you just need one copy of the same gene. So if a guy's mom or dad gives him one copy of the gene, he'll end up with red hair in his beard. So your beard is probably more red than your hair. (laughs) My, my, My eyebrows are a lot lighter than my hair. Yeah. It could be that the color of your beard taints everyone's perception of the color of your hair. Yeah. Yeah, all I have to do is shave and then people see me as blonde again. (laughs) That's not worth it. (laughs) The different types of taste, sweet, salty, sour, bitter, umami, as well as the less well-understood perceptions of fat, metallic, etc., all work differently at the chemical level when they interact with our taste buds, as well as our sense of smell and touch. The genetics and chemistry of those interactions are complex and often poorly understood, but there are a few we can experiment with, so those are the ones I care about. In 1931, a chemist named Arthur Fox was working with powdered PTC, which is phenolthiocarbamide, and some was released into the air, so he was a terrible chemist, obviously. (laughs) A colleague in the room commented that the powder tasted extremely bitter, like so bad that he could barely tolerate to be in the room anymore, and Fox detected no flavor at all. They conducted an experiment among friends and family, a common theme in this episode, and found a wide variation in how and whether people perceived the flavor of the PTC. Uh, There are at least 35 different proteins that interact with our sensory cells to produce bitter tastes. That's why such a wide range of things are perceived as bitter, especially things that are poisonous, which is, you know, a helpful thing for our bodies to do with us. PTC actually doesn't occur in nature, but it's similar to some naturally occurring compounds. Uh, Geneticists have discovered that the perception of PTC flavor was based on a single gene, TAS2R38, and that codes for a taste receptor on the tongue. The ability to taste PTC is often treated as a dominant genetic trait, although it's somewhat more complex than that. Uh, It seems like there's a range of being able to taste PTC based on whether you have two copies of the dominant allele for tasting, one copy of tasting and one non-tasting, or two copies of the non-tasting allele. Uh, People with two copies of the tasting allele who taste PTC and its associated compounds most strongly are sometimes called super tasters. Compounds that are similar to PTC are found in many vegetables like broccoli, kale, Brussels sprouts, and of course those are extremely closely genetically related. They're basically the same plant. Mm -hmm. And people who can taste PTC, especially those who are homozygous, which means both of their alleles are the tasting ones, often dislike foods that contain those compounds intensely, uh, such as Mark. (laughs) We we have some predictions about how this test is going to go. Uh, Interestingly, uh, this has nothing to do with anything, and I didn't know where to put in this segment, but I wanted to put it in here. PTC also inhibits melanogenesis and is used to grow transparent fish. (laughs) (laughs) So those, like, clear tetras and stuff that you can get at pet shops are Uh, done hmm. with PTC. That's kind of freaky, and I don't like that kind of nature, but it's so awesome. <laughs> I don't know what's responsible for this interaction, but I, as everybody here is aware, I love coffee. <laughs> and there are certain foods that I also really like that I have to make sure I don't 
eat before I drink coffee mm. because oh. it makes the coffee taste terrible. It interacts with them. Yeah, yeah, yeah like grapefruits uh, and to a lesser extent other citrus and uh, green pepper are mm. the two things that I've noticed. They make uh, mm. The green pepper especially makes coffee taste like burnt and kind of old and gross. Weird. Yeah, I yeah. guess it's just some sort of oil or something in there that, yeah. but it sticks. It sticks on the tongue for like an hour afterward. I can't have coffee. Well, if I if yeah. I ate green pepper, I oh, love every other flavor. Green pepper's pepper. delicious. You just eat them like apples. Oh, <laughs> I've grown out of liking green peppers. It was all green peppers all the time while I was a kid, but mm. now now I've got like the red and the yellow. And the... Anyway, also the sodium lauryl sulfate and mm-hmm. toothpaste also coats the tongue and makes things taste. Orange very, juice. Ah. Yeah. Yep. Very horrible for a long time afterwards. I'm used to that, the effect that has on coffee, though. So. Oh. Mm-hmm. Uh, the percentage of the population which can taste PTC varies widely depending on region and ancestry. Uh, about 70% of people can taste PTC worldwide, but it varies from a low of 58% for indigenous peoples of Australia and New Guinea uh, to about 98% for indigenous peoples of the Americas. Hmm. Uh, one study found that non-smokers and those who do not regularly drink coffee or tea have a statistically higher percentage of tasting PTC than the general population. We're out, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> well, I assume that's just sort of a masking effect. Yeah. Uh, the ability to taste bitter foods isn't the only difference between tasters and non-tasters. Uh, a quote from a study, although there are exceptions to the rule, super tasting is highly correlated with a greater density of tongue papillae than non-tasting, which means they have more taste buds. Researchers believe that this may be one reason why super tasters, and to a lesser extent tasters, perceive a greater intensity of a whole range of sensory characteristics, including spicy, sweet, and salty stimuli than non-tasters. Even fat perception is amplified, which was confirmed by a Rutgers study, showing that super tasters and medium tasters could distinguish the differences in fat content in salad dressing, uh, which was composed of either 10% or 40% fat, whereas non-tasters could not. And so this is something I've always noticed about myself, uh, that it doesn't matter to me what percentage of fat the sour cream is or whatever. Oh, really? Yeah, I just, I don't care. Well, that's a major difference for me. Like, (laughs) I I prefer when I have cream in my coffee and I, you know, sometimes I have it black, but I prefer the 18% Mm -hmm. cream for sure. It's a strong preference. Half and half is okay. But I will not have milk in my coffee. That is an abomination. <laughs> I will not have milk. It will not stand. <laughs> I'll just, you know, I'll have a black. And black coffee is great. Yeah. 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 I, I can tell the difference when I go to Tim Hortons and I order tea with cream. Mm-hmm. It tastes a certain way, but when I make it myself, I make it with uh, skim milk. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> the abomination. Yeah. Chalk water. <laughs> <laughs> I can also taste the difference between the different uh, sour creams. Mm. Yeah. Uh, So different studies claim to link various traits and habits to tasters and non-tasters. For example, some studies suggest that people who can taste PTC are more likely to be non-smokers and less likely to be coffee or tea drinkers. Other studies suggest that non-tasters are more likely to have certain thyroid problems, while tasters are at a higher risk for heart disease and cancer. Uh, This could be actually linked to food choices because of the PTC tasting, uh, because non-tasters are more likely to enjoy broccoli and related veggies, which contain some chemicals which block iodine uptake. So that can lead to thyroid problems. Laura says only if you don't cook them. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta get the dietitian notes in there. Uh, The research on theorea and sodium benzoate, which are the other two chemicals that are often in the uh, chemical taste strip things, uh, is much sparser. Basically, we have no idea what's going on there. (laughs) But researchers agree that whether or not you can taste PTC does not determine whether you can taste theorea. 
there is a similar range in the ability to taste it though, so a similar genetic pattern might be at play. Uh, sodium benzoate shows up for various people as either sweet, salty, bitter, or a combination of those things. It can also be completely tasteless. Um, it's often used as a food preservative, so your perception of its flavor can also change your food choices. So now um, I'd like to get predictions from everybody on whether they think they will be a taster or a non-taster based on this information, and then we're gonna check it out. So Jem, do you think you will be a taster or a non-taster? Well, I know I'm not a super taster because I love cilantro. <laughs> um, but uh, cilantro apparently has nothing to do with this. It oh, did really? not come up in my, that's a totally different genetic thing. Huh, okay. Hmm. Well, um, I don't know. Like I do really like a lot of things that are bitter. I can taste that they're bitter, though, but I just, it doesn't bother me. So I, I guess a, a taster, but not a super taster in this sense, but I could very well be a non-taster. Who knows? Okay. How about Mark? I'd definitely say I'm a taster, just based on my food, <laughs> food aversions. Uh, Lauren? I'm going to have the same equivocations that Jem does. <laughs> I have no idea. I'm going to go taster, question mark. <laughs> so based on my research, I am pretty sure that I'm going to show up as a non-taster. I don't think that I'm going to be able to taste it, which will put me in the minority of North American people. Uh, Laura, do you want to make a guess and test? Laura thinks she's going to be a taster. Okay. And if, if these guesses bear out, that will be pretty close to the statistical average, which would be neat. <laughs> All right. Uh, everybody should probably have a glass of water. All right. So as in any good scientific experiment, we have to have a control. This is just paper. If you taste anything, something is wrong. But you've unblinded us. This is how it says to do the thing. Okay. <laughs> I think it's just a test to make sure like this is what paper tastes like. I licked it and I'm like, oh, that does taste. Oh, that's just the shawarma. <laughs> that's the falafel that's I had what the earlier. Water is for to rinse out your mouth. All right, everyone, that's what paper tastes like. Let's do Theo. I have no idea how to actually pronounce this, so I'm sorry to anybody who actually does Theoria paper first because it's sort of the least interesting <laughs> in my view. Are these correlated to each other in any way? Like, no. should we. So we might taste some, but not others. They're all different. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and there is a range, as I was saying. So you may taste one very mildly and taste another quite a bit more. Oh, my. Is there a particular part of the paper we're supposed to look? Nope. Oh. No. Oh. Yep, that tastes like paper. That's bitter. <laughs> that is very bitter. I don't taste anything. I taste something off, but I don't taste super bitter. Oh, I'm actually starting to get a little bit bitter as it travels toward the back of my tongue. Wait, Mark, on your garbage bag. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's where bitter is. No, but actually, that was one of the things I was reading about. Like, the only one that's actually sort of true is bitter. There are mm. a lot more bitter receptors at the back of your tongue. Yeah, that was very bitter for me. Okay, so I can yeah. I can uh, taste a little tiny bit. For me, it's a, it's a, yeah, it's a little bit bitter, but yeah. it's not bad. I don't, no. It, it bother I, me. Nothing mm, for Mark. Oh, okay. That, okay. It was very bitter, but it wasn't bothering me. Hmm. Maybe yeah. I like that. All right, so this is the sodium benzoate. So... We have to pay okay. attention to this one because there are those four different things and they can overlap. So you can taste uh, salty and sweet, for example. Mm. <laughs> can we just or eat some nothing at all. Instead? <laughs> oh, yes. There's a specific like flavor I'm still tasting from that last strip. It tastes kind of like, um, I don't know, like licking the inside of a balloon or something. Yeah. <laughs> oh, sorry, I've got to clear my palate. Yeah, remember to uh, rinse your mouth out in between strips. Ugh. Ugh. I don't know what that is. Paper? Yeah, I definitely taste like a little bit sweet, a little bit salty, but not in a good way. 
Yeah, it tastes like artificially sweet plus like a bitter undertones, like something's gone off. So you've got sweet and bitter. I've definitely got like sweet and salty, but I don't get bitter out of this. I don't even really get salty. I get like just mildly sweet. Hmm. I get weird and all. I get kind of mildly sweet, kind of like barbecue potato chips or whatever. Like it doesn't taste like sweet fruit, but like... Yeah, it tastes like I just licked some like Splenda or something off my finger. Yeah. I don't get the artificial sweetener thing just because I don't get an aftertaste with it at all. Mm -hmm. How about you, Mark? <laughs> Still trying to taste something. Interesting. I'm so I'm so interested to see what you do with yeah. the PTC. Then all right. Nothing intense. Not nothing like you know licking Splenda. Or so if you like no that. longer have an excuse for hating broccoli, what would you do? <laughs> <laughs> He's a grown ass man. He doesn't have to like broccoli if he doesn't want. It's all, it's all texture. That's it. All right, everybody, rinse your mouth out. Mm, thank you. Soap. Last one. Here's your bitter strip of paper. <laughs> That's very mild for me. It's about as bitter as the second, the, the one after the control. To me, it is less bitter. I feel like I can taste a tiny bit of it again at the back of my tongue. It is definitely there for me. When I when, when I Laura's swallow, got nothing. When Laura's I swallow afterwards, it it's more of a taste. Hmm. I'm I'm actually I'm quite surprised that I'm tasting anything based on everything I read. I was like, yeah, I have every characteristic of a non-taster. <laughs> Mark? I don't really. <laughs> Mark, have you ever tasted anything? Do you have a sense of taste? <laughs> I still taste garlic. I, f- I feel like I should give you like three of them to have at once. See if I, I had two. You had yeah, two? two okay. really... I got nothing there. All right, Mark tastes nothing <laughs> and has no more excuses for not eating his veggies. <laughs> have you had like Brussels sprouts like done in the oven with some onion and olive oil no. and garlic? Salt. Oh, it's so no. good. I based it on my experience with cabbage. Oh, oh no. no! No, come over. We'll, we will feed you. <laughs> Any kind of roasted vegetable, I love it. Yeah, I do not like the taste of cooked broccoli, and I don't like. How about pepper. like roasted cauliflower? Like I do not like cauliflower in any way. Really? Like I really, I not like a strong flavor, but I'm yeah. just like this is a flavor that I just find unpleasant. Interesting. I love parsnips. I love roasted parsnips. Yeah. Like yeah. there are lots of Super things good. that other people don't like that I love. I love I asparagus, love uh, yeah. but. Yeah, there are just some things that I'm just like, eh. Yeah, I'll eat a lot of vegetables raw, mm-hmm. but once you cook them, it's like, don't even want to look at them. So Jem thought he was a taster, but not a super taster. That seems to have been borne out. Mark thought he was a taster and apparently has never tasted anything <laughs> in his life. <laughs> yeah. garlic. Uh, Lauren thought, taster question mark? Taster. <laughs> uh, I thought I was going to be a non-taster and I can taste that. <laughs> and Laura thought she was going to be a taster and... Didn't taste anything. This is fascinating. I, got, I have a hundred of each strip, so now I'm just going to make everybody do the test. <laughs> the next topic is a little bit contentious, actually. So before we move on, we're going to do a couple more experiments. Why don't you tell the listeners what uh, I have arrayed in front of you? We each have three plastic cups. They are labeled one, two, and three. The first two are of a clear bubbly beverage, and the last one is of a somewhat foamy, dark-colored carbonated beverage. And there is approximately the same amount in each cup. And we were told not to smell them. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Ominous. Uh, Okay. I would like you all to take a sip from cup number one and just uh, write down... Can we smell it as we're... Are we allowed to? Uh, Yeah, yeah, sure. Just write down your impressions. It's probably not going to be as interesting as you as you might have assumed before tasting it. Jem has been like teasing us that he has something in his fridge for us for a long time. 
Okay, and when you're ready, you can take a sip from cup number two and uh, just write down your impressions, what you think it is. Going back for another sip. This one confuses me. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> hey, and then uh, at your leisure, uh, you can rinse and then have a sip from cup number three. I feel like I know where this is going. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so once you've got your descriptions ready, tell me what uh, is in cup number one. I thought it tastes like 7-Up or Sprite. I put uh, standard clear pop, Sprite or 7-Up. I said lemon-lime soda, quite strong lemon-lime flavor. Yeah, okay, so everybody got it right. That was 7-Up. Not to promote one particular brand. (laughs) It's what I happen to have in my fridge at work. (laughs) Brendan, we stole your pop. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so uh, how about number two? Mark? That was harder to uh, judge. I thought maybe like one of those Crystal Pepsis. I have that too. Sweeter tasting clear pop. Crystal Pepsi question mark. I said shitty lemon lime soda. <laughs> <laughs> question mark. And then I also said the flavor intensifies over time. Uh, yeah, it was a confusing flavor after the 7-Up. That was Crystal Pepsi. And oh, Crystal yes. Pepsi. Yeah, yeah. After I tasted the Pepsi, well, sorry, after I tasted cup number three. <laughs> with the mysterious brown liquid. I, uh, I was like, oh. <laughs> so it clicked, but. Yeah. Number three was Pepsi. And I said, Pepsi or store brand, not Coke. Yeah. Yeah. I, mm-hmm. Pepsi question mark. <laughs> yeah. Too sweet to be Coke. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So the third uh, was indeed Pepsi because that is what we had in our fridge. And I think that Pepsi might have been from 2015. Uh, <laughs> I think we got it for free when we ordered pizza one time. <laughs> we don't drink a lot of soda pop. Uh, so now uh, I'm going to go around the table and mm-hmm. I'm going to see if you can tell the difference with your eyes closed. Mm. So we'll start with Mark. Taste this one first. <laughs> Squeeze my hand. <laughs> and uh, which one was the Crystal Pepsi? Mm, I think the first one. Uh, yeah, you're correct. Now, do you expect you'll be able to tell the difference? I don't know, because I'm closing my eyes. Okay. <laughs> we did get an answer that I really liked, actually, with Ashlyn, at the very least, because you did write down that it was... Shitty lemon-lime soda. Shitty lemon-lime soda. <laughs> that it did taste like lemon-lime soda, or, or at the very least, you didn't immediately realize that mm-hmm. it was Pepsi. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, which one was first? Uh, the brown one, number three. You are correct. I guess this is a question for Ashlyn. I want to know if the Crystal Pepsi tastes more like Pepsi when you can't see it. Mm-hmm. So. Well, that was way harder with my eyes closed. <laughs> uh, I'm back for a second try. I have no idea. They Can't taste tell. identical. <laughs> really? Wow. That was fascinating. They did not taste identical to me. Well, no, and they dude. tasted kind of, like, even the second try when I knew, like, they tasted different. And we actually, when we got Crystal Pepsi uh, a few months ago, when it was here, briefly, um, Dave and I did, like, a blind taste test, and they tasted different to me then. <laughs> mm, so that's interesting. For both Mark and Lauren they could tell the difference with their eyes closed. Like, it's a 50-50, so who knows if that's, a, that's not a representative sample. Mm-hmm. But uh, that, it, it is interesting. And whereas Ashlyn was sure they tasted different with her eyes open, mm-hmm. uh, and in fact labeled the Crystal Pepsi seven up <laughs> um, But with her eyes closed, couldn't tell the difference, and they tasted the same. That's, that's really interesting. Laura, do you want to get on this one? <laughs> Laura was also correct. I feel deficient. <laughs> the coloring in that, that adds a little yeah, bit the, of flavor. The coloring yeah. agent may add a little bit of flavor. Yeah. I know, I haven't tried Crystal Pepsi since, <laughs> I don't know, the, like the, the, the early 90s, 90s when, it was, yeah. when it was first out or whatever. 
it only it only came out in Canada very briefly. Yeah. Um, uh, I missed it while it was out, so I actually had to order some from the states. And oh, wow. like a single uh, 700 milliliter bottle, I think, or uh, who knows what it is in ounces? Who cares? 12 ounces, I think. Um, with shipping was like thirty dollars. <laughs> oh my god! Well, because it, like you're shipping liquid, right? It's very All right, heavy. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay, so even with the, even just having tasted the first one, I think that that one's Taste the crystal. Both. <laughs> <laughs> What a terrible beverage. <laughs> He's going back again. He doesn't like either of them. <laughs> it may also be that one of these is like 11 months old and the other one is two years <laughs> old. That may be what guess. we're tasting. Oh my God. Um, uh, I have no idea. I guess the first one is crystal. Wrong. Oh, I was, yeah, I was wrong. Okay. Yeah. That was interesting. I, I have but you, like, actively dislike the beverage. So. I actively dislike yeah. the yeah. <laughs> I think that makes it harder. It just tastes like syrup with a little yeah. bit of uh, so I have a, acid. I have a quick question. Um, you said you ordered the Crystal Pepsi from the States. Yeah. Was the regular Pepsi... It was obviously Canadian, right? Yeah. yeah so They, they had different, different sugars nah. and different compounds in them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, well. And I've always maintained that I can't tell the difference, so I guess that's also <laughs> true. <laughs> See, and that's one of the clues for me when I was tasting them was the smell. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the Crystal Pepsi smells different than the uh, regular Pepsi. Smells like corn syrup. Uh, carbonated water, uh, glucose, fructose, and or sugar. Yeah. Plus <laughs> acid, so it doesn't even... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We have three orange drinks in front of us. The first two are translucent and bubbly. And neon. <laughs> and the third one looks like orange juice. No. <laughs> That's definitely not real orange juice. That is orange drink. <laughs> I think the third one is also carbonated. And is it? They're all carbonated. Oh. The third, the third one is not uh, is a little bit more opaque, so it's harder to see the yeah, bubbles. Yeah. So just like before, um, take a sip from cup number one. Oh. What are you feeding me? I'm diabetic. <laughs> if you can't identify it, which is... Fine. Uh, just describe it in some way. So I'm pretty sure I've tasted it before, but I do think this is the most fun I've ever had recording an episode. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> I love experimenting. So um, uh, we'll go around the table again, and uh, starting with cup number one. Yeah, I said carbonated honey water. Mm. I said uh, urn brown, so it tastes like pop syrup. <laughs> so the the unmixed yeah, yeah. pop syrup that comes in the bags. I really didn't know what to make of it. <laughs> now afterwards, the honey. Flavor mm. sort of comes through, but I just said horrible. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that, that is what it is. It was carbonated honey water. Yes, um, I got oh. all the words right. Okay. Uh, let's move with on like to cup number coloring, two. With, yes, with with orange food coloring in it. Cup number two. Yeah, I said uh, sweet question mark, carbonated question mark, seven up question mark. <laughs> <laughs> Commercial mixed pop syrup, not orange soda though. Okay. Mm. I put on C+. Mm-hmm. C plus. So, the, the, so an orange soda. Yeah. yeah. The second one was indeed 7-Up with orange food coloring oh, okay. in it. And uh, cup number three. I wrote orange soda, but uh, it was also like not like orange crush. I put carbonated sunny D. <laughs> <laughs> um, like the orange San Pellegrino. And I also put vitamin C drink bullshit. Orange <laughs> And I put down orange crush. Although the... Two and three could be reversed. I, I know there's a difference yeah. between the flavor, but... Mm-hmm. So uh, this is in part my error. I had intended all of these to look pretty identical. Mm. Uh, that is because 
I never get Fanta. And I assumed Fanta looked like Orange Crush. Mm. But indeed, Fanta is more opaque and it's yellow. somewhat more natural looking. Somewhat more natural looking. Uh, so they were in order. Uh, first, low sodium club soda with uh, honey and food coloring in it. And the, and the honey was measured to have approximately the same caloric content as the, as the soda. The second one was indeed 7-Up with orange food coloring oh, okay. in it. Uh, and I think I did a pretty damn good job. And I got I got yeah. Mark. Mark thought mm-hmm. it was orange soda. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the third one uh, was orange soda. In this case, Fanta, not Orange Crush. And mm. I, I think if I hadn't been suspicious, I would have thought that the second one was Orange Crush. Like, if I hadn't yeah. been examining the flavor, I would have been like, sure, it's Orange Crush. Whatever. I hate orange pops, so mm. <laughs> and that didn't taste like... This is slightly less vile than expected. Yeah, it didn't. Yeah. <laughs> and the reason I used honey for the first one was uh, it has a it has some amount of flavor. You know, I sh- I would have picked something that was a little bit more neutral because it has a very distinguishable flavor. Mm-hmm. Um, and depending on the type of honey, several different distinguishable flavors. <laughs> uh, but uh, it also is much easier to dissolve in water without mm-hmm. extensive prep in somebody Why else's kitchen. Why not just kitchen. do like um, simple syrup? A simple syrup because I did not have time to prepare a simple syrup yesterday okay. and I was planning to do this at my house, <laughs> not yours. <laughs> so what we're really getting at with these experiments here, uh, and these are not scientific experiments, the blinding is, you know, I, I, I've done my best, but, you know, whatever. Um, the participants are suspicious and we have an N of four-ish. So what we're getting at here is uh, the concept of sensory interference, the fact that some senses can mask or interfere with the perception of other senses. As I mentioned at the top, and as Lauren discussed in her segment on synesthesia, our senses aren't as independent as we might think. Uh, There's a has anyone here ever heard of Brochet's wine experiment? Yep. Yes. <laughs> so um, it is often cited to discredit uh, oenology, uh, which is the, the science of wine tasting. But it, it also showed that our perception of some senses can be affected by others. Specifically, in this case, that our senses of taste and smell can be overridden by the sense of sight. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, Brochet's uh, study wasn't but I'll, I'll briefly describe it, and I'll uh, leave it to our listeners to uh, investigate further. We'll have uh, links in the show notes. So on day one of the study, Brochet provided 54 oenology students, uh, wine-tasting students, with two glasses of wine, one red, one white, and asked them to pick words to describe each of the wines from a pre-selected pool of words that are typically used to describe wines. For the white wine, students, unsurprisingly, chose terms to describe it that are typically associated with white wine, such as floral, honey, peach, uh, lemony, that sort of thing. Well, for the red, they chose words like raspberry, cherry, or cedar. The next week, the students returned and were again offered two glasses of wine. The first was an identical white wine to the one presented on day one. But the second, instead of being a red wine was actually the same white wine again, but dyed red. Brochet again asked the students to pick the words that best describe the wines from the same list of words. The white wine was described as before, but surprisingly, the identical wine that was just colored red was described by students using the words they'd previously associated with red wine, like chicory or raspberry or cedar. Brochet wrote that the wine's color appears to provide significant sensory information which misleads the subject's ability to judge flavor. Uh, the study has faced some criticism, as I, as I said, hence my attempt to, at least in spirit, replicate some aspects of it 
here. <laughs> and we had some fun. And in each of the tests, at, at least one person was fooled <laughs> by, by the difference in, uh, in, in color. So well, that's interesting. Mark doesn't have a sense of taste. When it's- <laughs> oh, right. Okay. <laughs> and I've also discovered that honey water mixed with uh, 7-Up is pretty good. <laughs> so why don't we talk about the miracle fruit? Yeah. Uh, the miracle fruit, or sweet berry, is the berry of the plant Sincepalum dolcificum, uh, also known by several other binomials, uh, including Richardella dolcifica. It is a uh, plant native to West Africa, and the miracle for which its fruit is named isn't perhaps the most impressive miracle, but unlike some of the greater miracles, it does have the benefit of being real. (laughs) The miracle is this. Upon consuming the berry, for a short period of time, uh, between 10 minutes and an hour, uh, sour foods instead taste quite sweet. The active ingredient, called miraculin, (laughs) It's unobtainium. Yeah. uh, Binds to the taste buds on the tongue. So at a neutral pH, sweetness receptors are actually inhibited. But at low pHs, uh, so in the presence of food that would typically taste sour, the sweetness receptors instead are activated, causing sour foods to taste very sweet. Does it cause sweet foods to taste any different? That's hard to say because most foods are, have complex notes in them. Mm-hmm. So uh, most people will describe foods that are typically thought of as sweet, like strawberries, mm-hmm. for example, as extra sweet. Mm-hmm. But it's hard to say whether that's just because the uh, any acidity in the food is, is sort yeah, of adding an extra of layer of stuff. And apologies to our listeners, our cat has decided it is run around the house o'clock. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've got some miraculin here, so who wants to try it? Yeah. yeah. I'm scared but excited. Jim put together a very beautiful spread. Mm-hmm. The limes smell delicious. Yeah, I don't know if Lauren's reaction is going to be any different, because she just likes chatting down on all this stuff anyway. <laughs> so why don't you all like just uh, taste something sour just to get to get an idea so for our listeners here we have a beautiful array of raw cranberries green apple a granny smith apple lime lemon and salt and vinegar chips so very sour foods with a couple of different tastes apparently beer is also a good one to try because this makes beer taste terrible (laughs) (laughs) do we have any beer we have beer don't we no okay yeah sorry Mm. i I don't drink so i don't (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Um, Had a salt and vinegar chip. Didn't like it. So now uh, take one of these and um, don't swallow it yet. Just uh, kind of rub it around the inside of your mouth. (laughs) It's not sharing. It it should dissolve a little bit in your mouth. It's probably going to be pulpy because usually what they do is like they just pulp and dehydrate the berries. And just kind of roll it around your tongue to coat your whole tongue. When you feel like you're ready, usually I spend about a minute doing that. Start tasting. The tablets themselves... Have like a little bit of a fruity flavor. Hmm. Licking the lime juice off my lips tastes sweet. Just take take something and see I how it take tastes. The same, uh, another slice of lime. I'm just, I, I'm gonna take some lime even though I haven't had any miraculous. Oh dear, sweet Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> there is still the limey taste, but it's mm-hmm. not. It's like candied lime. Mm-hmm. Actually, you, you have you've had a lot of really great looks in your face. I, my favorite was when you had the orange fanta. You looked more disgusted than when you had the honey water. <laughs> So how does that lime taste? Well, it still tastes extremely sour, so I'm confused. Oh, really? (laughs) Because I was expecting good things. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just rolling this around some more. So, Lauren, you got an effect? Yeah, it was Ah. still sour. It was still sour. No, you promised this would be good! (laughs) No! (laughs) It was still sour to the back of my mouth, Hmm. where I don't think I got coated. Perhaps we we needed more tablets. I can still... 
sense the sourness, mm-hmm. but it does taste a lot sweeter. The chips taste weird, sweet, hmm. but also and the cranberry. Sour. Cranberry yeah. tastes delicious. No, the chips taste like there's a little bit of vinegar, but it's like a almost like a balsamic, like a oh yeah, like a thickened balsamic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the chips to me taste like just regular. The cranberries salt. taste good. Maybe it's just I didn't like, try one without them though. So mm-hmm. like but cranberries no are tartness. not super sweet. Most people find them unbearably sour. Like yeah, most I love raw. them. I like I like them, but I really like cranberries. Are these sour, really like sour right now? Yeah. Have you had one of them? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that doesn't taste sour to me at all. Very, very sour. That's interesting. Nah, but that's still terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Damn it. (laughs) No, this still tastes exactly the same. It tastes (laughs) like a lemon. So I guess your pill was a lemon. So what is the what is the apple supposed to taste like? It is a less sweet type of apple. I just I picked something that was less less dramatically acidic. Yeah. And this is very sweet. Granny Smith apples are sweet, but they're also a little. No, bit... but it's like sugar. Hmm. Tastes like eating sugar. <laughs> That's <laughs> interesting. The chips. If I put them on the at the end of my tongue, where I think I'll be the most coated, mm-hmm. I get like a, a hit of sugar, and then the chip with a little bit of vinegar. Oh, this is so weird. Candy apple. And, and just to be clear, this is not a psychoactive substance. It is literally just changing the way the yeah. chemical receptors on your tongue work. Mm-hmm. Um, although some it. call it flavor tripping. <laughs> wow. Now I'm going to This is try the best apple I've ever eaten. Pop. Well, I'm not <laughs> no, I just did that. It tasted no different to me. Still tastes gross. But that wasn't the orange pop. That's just lemon lime. Can't tell the difference anymore. What is this? Vinegar. <laughs> Yep, it smells of vinegar. <laughs> tastes like vinegar? No. It tastes like. So Lauren just sweet. took a, like Lauren just took a swig of uh, of white vinegar. So people will frequently uh, do taste feats of strength here, where they will drink vinegar or uh, drink lime juice or lemon juice. That can be dangerous just to, yeah, to chug to it down because it. it's it's not good for your stomach to take in that much extra yeah. acid. And that's like it. I make a cucumber salad that has like equal parts vinegar and sugar, and that's kind of what that tastes like to me now. Yeah. <laughs> so I still have the sour, but I also have yeah, the sugar. Yeah, it tastes like a sugar brine. Sugar. This might be the only time I ever enjoy cranberries. So. <laughs> hey, you, you've tried my cranberry. No, no, I've never had the okay. cranberry pie. Oh, it's so good. I, I'm making a cranberry pie for pie day. Ooh, I think it's wearing off. But while we're all enjoying the after effects of our hit of Miraculum, <laughs> let's talk about the first and last experiment, I guess, that we did for this show. A few weeks ago, uh, somebody hit us up on Twitter and asked if if anyone in the Winnipeg Skeptics had done a sensory deprivation tank before. And I said, uh, not to my knowledge, um, but uh, I'll, uh, I'll ask around and let you know. But we are talking about... The senses on our next episode of the podcast, so maybe that's something we should try. And so Ashlyn arranged it for us. When you arrived, Ashlyn, you you texted me and you said, "Been here ten minutes. So far, I've heard about osteopathy and craniofacial something or other. About to get in." <laughs> <Eep>. <laughs> yeah, the, he was uh, the owner was standing at the front counter and talking to a client or a friend or somebody about different things that they should try in addition to the floating, and it's just like, <laughs> oh. And I mean, it, I, I was impressed with the place. It was very clean, and it was nicely decorated, it was and I pretty. thought it was quite pretty. Mm-hmm. It was very humid. 
<laughs> yeah, they had those uh, Himalayan salt lamps. Chairs that were difficult to get out of. They were very squishy. <laughs> I checked the website before we arrived, and they made all sorts of dubious uh, like claims about health benefits, including they don't tend to market it as sensory deprivation these days. No, mm-hmm. they don't. Calm, floating. Yeah. I think maybe it's less about the fact that you don't actually get deprived of all of your senses and more about the fact that you can just phrase it as we're giving you something, not taking something away. So it's like calm, float, or... Mm. And sensory deprivation has got a bad rap with the using it in asylums and <laughs> as treatment for all sorts of things and people being put in against their will. Yeah. But they, uh, these health uh, benefits that they claimed included, like, palm float will help fight the opioid crisis, uh, <laughs> can help you quit smoking, you'll get enhanced creativity and super learning, whatever that is. <laughs> and, of course, uh, you get to boost the immune system, uh, which is a meaningless claim that everybody makes. Although the FAQ did have... Um, is this just mumbo-jumbo? Yeah. Is this just new-age mumbo-jumbo? Floating has been around for 50 years and has numerous of published scientific research to back it up. <laughs> no mumbo, type, what type is on the website. No mumbo or jumbo here. <laughs> and uh, according to the person at the front desk that we talked to, uh, 90 minutes of uh, floating equals four hours of sleep. Mm. I have oh. no idea how they calculated that. And I asked and she said, I don't know. There are studies, I guess. Uh, I don't. I don't know much about it. <laughs> but you, you just made that claim. Well, I, she I mean she seemed like she was maybe a university student doing this as a side gig. Yeah, <laughs> sure, that's fine. She was very lovely. She also implied that it prevented uh, colds and illness, as our listeners are aware. Laura isn't on this on this podcast because she's sick. Um, for every anecdote, there's an equal and opposite anecdote. Oh, and I ended up with a bilateral ear infection. <laughs> <laughs> The, the waiver forms also managed to imply that it treats all sorts of things like depression, etc., without actually claiming that yeah, it does. Yeah, they say, which mm. of these things do you want to change in your life? And there's a big checklist of things you can check off. You don't mm. get to, you have to check off at least one. I was really frustrated by that because I'm like, I'm, I'm fine. I don't, I'm not trying, I just, I just want to try this. I'm not trying to change anything in my life. Mm. You know, <laughs> just let me, just let me through. I, I hate badly designed web forms. <laughs> so what was it like? You want to describe so, the process? Yeah, I, I went in first. They only had three pods, so uh, the four of us wanted who wanted to try it, we had to split it up. Yeah, Mark sat this one out. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Everybody gets your own private room, and it has this giant, floaty, space-age-looking pod in it. And well, two shower. of the three were space age. One of them was right, like one an older one from the nineties. One of them was kind of rectangular and looked like yeah. an iron lung. <laughs> I was in that one. I was, it was very nineteen fifties sci-fi. Mm, yeah, I liked it better. <laughs> and there's a shower in each room, as well as some uh, clothing hooks on the back of the door, which I did not notice until I had already put all of my crap on the floor. So, <laughs> pro tip for anybody else going: you look for the hooks. Uh, so you have to shower before you get in and use the body wash and make sure that you don't have any oils or lotions or anything on you. So when I stepped in, I guess I expected it, I don't know, to be magic and support me immediately. <laughs> but I was like, hmm, my foot goes immediately to the ground. I don't know. 
Like I said, that was not a reasonable expectation. <laughs> so the way it's, it, it works is that the water is super saturated with Epsom, Epsom salts. salts. Yeah. It is very dense, mm-hmm. and it's much denser than your body, and so you float like you're in the Dead Sea. Yeah, but one foot in the water is not going to support you. It's, no. it's only about nine inches of, of water, like salty water in there. So, I mean, I'm a, a big person. I was a little bit worried that that would not be enough to support all of me. Mm. Um, but when that first moment of sitting down in the pod and, and leaning back and sort of letting the water take your weight was, was really quite magical. Uh, and I, I felt around after and like my, my bum was only a tiny bit off of the ground, but it still, you couldn't feel anything. So it was really quite perfectly weightless. Yeah. Uh, it, it was neat. Uh, I mean, it wasn't perfect. We're in Winnipeg and it's winter. <laughs> And so it's very cold and dry, and so your your hands tend to crack. You get cracks in your knuckles and like that. And so they give you some Vaseline to put on the cracks in your knuckles, seal them up, but, mm-hmm. you know, the salt can still get in there. So I noticed, like, I've got a hangnail, and I couldn't really seal that up, and so that, that kind of stung the whole time. Mm-hmm. And my, my lips also stung a lot the whole time. Just dry lips, I guess. I didn't get any of the water on my face. I, like, I didn't put my lips in or anything. It was just from, the like, the salt in the air, I think. I also put lip balm in before I went in because I have problems with lip balm. Yeah, I didn't, I guess I didn't have any cracks or anything. I didn't notice any stinging at all until I was actually getting out. I got a little tiny bit on the corner of my eye, and that was, uh. like, holy crap, that hurt. <laughs> I also found that the air in there, it felt, like, heavy. And mm-hmm. after a while, it yeah. became a little bit hard to breathe. Yeah. I don't know if that's because it was just super moist and I'm not used to breathing that really moist air. Like I said, it's pretty dry in Winnipeg. Mm-hmm. But I also found that uh, about half an hour in, my sinuses started closing up. Yeah. So I had to start breathing through my mouth, which I really don't like. But it was like floating in a tranquil pool. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, pe- people talk about sensory experiences that they have when deprived of... I I didn't get any hallucinations or anything remotely like that. I didn't lose any sense of time. But pretty soon, I did find that any slight motion, like as you're floating there, you'll occasionally bump against the side. Just, Mm -hmm. you know, your toe or whatever, and you'll... I don't know, I kind of pushed myself off a mm-hmm. little bit. And even though I couldn't I couldn't be moving at more than like a centimeter every 10 seconds, yeah. it felt like suddenly I was spinning. Yeah, it felt like very whoosh. Yeah, like I, I felt like I was floating in a, in a tranquil pool and suddenly I'm tilting off of a waterfall or something. Mm-hmm. Like that, so that was neat. That was mm-hmm. uh, uh, a worthwhile experience. But it did, they did kind of subside after the first half hour. I didn't, yeah. I think I got I used to it. I spent the first half hour experimenting. Because why not? So I lay on my back. I found it really difficult. They suggest you put your hands with the palms up above your head. Yeah, like like you're like you're being arrested or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, or you're doing a dead man's float. Right. So I I put my hands like that, and it hurt my mid to upper back. So yeah. I had to get used to that. And there was also two pipes in mine that I was holding on to for a bit. That I found really interesting because it gave me something to anchor to. Mm-hmm. And then I was doing those little laps sideways through the pool. Yeah. Then I flipped over. I, well, I sat against the wall for a while. I sat up. And then I flipped over and floated on my stomach. Because even though the water is the same temperature as skin temperature, I could feel the difference on the parts of my body that weren't submerged. For the first, I think half hour or so I could tell what parts were submerged and what parts weren't and it was like a very kind of clean line where the water was but as the time wore on that that distinction kind of disappeared in my hands and my feet 
it, there were parts of my body where it never disappeared, but like in my extremities, it felt kind of like the my extremities almost dissolved mm-hmm. I, and I couldn't feel them anymore so long as I didn't move. If you move, you feel yeah. ripples and like that, but yeah. I was trying to give it the best shot. I did kind of lose that sensation. Yeah, I kept my hands and feet under the water and what I noticed was because I can't get them under the water, it was my boobs that were cold. <laughs> um, I think I fell asleep because I remember the first half hour mm-hmm. and I remember doing some of those little help, help, I'm dying leg kicks that happen when you fall asleep. Yeah. And think I was snoring. <laughs> and then there was the music that signals the end of your session. So, mm-hmm. like I said, I think I fell asleep. How long was the session? 90 minutes. I did have some really interesting thoughts. I wrote a very tonally appropriate J-horror story about the pipes. <laughs> Don't worry, I won't actually write it. Nobody has to be subjected to that. Like I wasn't even trying to scare myself. It was just, this is fine. This is just what I'm thinking about. I definitely did not fall asleep. I was very aware of the passage of time. Not in a, not in a bothersome way, but I w- was trying to be a close observer of what I was feeling uh, because I wanted to share it with our listeners. But that, I think, interfered to some degree with my ability to enjoy the experience for what it was. Mm-hmm. I'm very aware that at the end of an experience my impressions of it will be different than at the beginning. And it will be hard to remember how it felt at the beginning because you have peak end bias. Yeah. So I was trying to summarize my thoughts and, you know, make note of the things that I should remember to mention on the on the podcast. And I ended up with, as I often do, a litany in my head of things that I was repeating to myself to make mm. sure that I wouldn't forget them. That's part of my OCD. It's something that happens a lot. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, but it would definitely hurt your ability to... Yeah, and and so when I felt like I was about halfway through the experience, I thought, look, I've got to, I don't want to get out of the pod because that is detrimental to the experience, I think, but I need, I need to get this out of my head somehow, mm-hmm. and I can't just let it go because I have obsessive compulsive disorder. So I, uh, I opened up the pod, uh, grabbed my phone, jotted down seven words to summarize my thoughts, mm-hmm. uh, and then put the phone away, closed the pod. Uh, but as I pulled out my phone to, to jot down this note, I noticed that I had been in the pod for 47 minutes. Uh, so it was exactly halfway through. Oh, yeah, okay, well, I'm not I'm not getting any lost time sensation. It did feel kind of like being on the Gravitron at uh, a carnival because there were only two positions you could have your hands in, either up at your head or down kind of akimbo. And that felt very weird. Yeah, well, both of them felt pretty weird to me. But like on a Gravitron, you know, your 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 hand is flat one way or flat the other. I felt kind of like the Vitruvian Man. <laughs> I crossed mine over my chest for a while. I wanted mm-hmm. to avoid like touching myself at mm-hmm. all, just so that I wouldn't. Uh, okay. mm-hmm. I, I yeah, would yeah, yeah. Just for, just for as actual comfort. I had my hands touching my hips for a while, and it didn't seem. Mm-hmm. It sort of everything sort of just blended together into one mm-hmm. hole so it didn't distract me. I find it very interesting that you compare it to the Gravitron. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Gravitron is my favorite thing in the world <laughs> because it is the only thing that straightens out my back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it feels amazing when I go on the Gravitron because uh, so I have Schuerman's disease. My back is curved weirdly. Um, and that was actually a big part of the floating experience for me was worrying about my back. Part of me was really hoping that, you know, everything would stretch out and it would feel really great after. But actually, during the float, it really hurt. Oh, Um, really? Yeah. So my lower back was in quite a bit of pain because I guess it was 
confused. <laughs> like there was there was nothing supporting it and and I was trying really hard to like consciously relax my muscles, but mm-hmm. it was it was very difficult and so I was actually worried that I wouldn't be able to get out of the pod. Because I wasn't sure that I was going to be able to stand up after. Thanks. I was wondering about you when my back was hurting. Because I saw you, you were you were out of the pod by the time I got there. Mm-hmm. So I know you were you were able to stand up. Yeah. But yeah, and it ended up feeling fine. It felt like somewhat good for a while, and it but it did hurt later on that evening. Hmm. Um, so it was kind of the opposite of the gravitron for oh, me. No. <laughs> Yeah, I, I used to love the Gravitron, but uh, I get really, really dizzy really easily now mm-hmm. as an adult. So, so Jim, you were indicating that you were had your arms out at right angles to your body. Is that the way they told you to be in there? Or well, well so what they what they suggested uh, is having your hands up, palms facing mm-hmm. up. You know, at your head, that's the most natural position. It still felt tingly after a while, not because mm-hmm. I was losing sensation, but just because it feels like an unnatural position to hold my hands in. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I flipped them down. But basically, like, they have to be floating on the water somehow, so they're either down at your side or up. You can't have yeah. them straight out because they're just yeah, not wide yeah. enough. Right. The way they naturally float when you have them down is they kind of end up floating up and yeah, up to your hips. Oh, okay. hips. Yeah. It's just, I think, because of the parts of you that are more floaty in your mm. elbows. Maybe and it's the tension down. in your muscles. Yeah. Mm. So that's that's okay. how I ended up doing it for almost mm. the entire time, hands I did, up at my I head. did find that when I stretched my arms out above my head and I let my hair out of its ponytail and float, my mohawk is the same length as my arms. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have a bit of chronic low back pain. Um, not Nothing like you have, I, I don't think. Also, the base of my skull, I get tension headaches a lot. Mm. And that did feel a little bit better. Um, like it was still tense and I was aware that it was like the only part of my body that was tense, like just the base of my skull a tiny little bit and then my lower back. Yeah, I had a really hard time consciously relaxing my neck. I had to keep every few minutes, I had to think about letting that go because you, you, your natural instinct is to keep your head out of the water. Yeah. Right? And it's hard to just relax. It was like, it was very difficult to get in deep enough that you would have gotten any water on your face, but... It was still a, a reflex. Yeah. There were a few things that I found really distracting. The first one was my worry that I was not going to hear the end of the session and I was yes. going to, like, somebody <laughs> was going to have to come pounding on the door to get me out of there. <laughs> um, so when I started, they had the music playing. There was music in my pod. And there was a, right beside the light switch inside the pod, there was a thing that said music. And so I wanted the music to stop. So I, push the button and it didn't really do anything so like whatever but then the music stopped a few minutes later which i guess was like the start of the session Mm -hmm. but i was worried i had like messed up the system so the music (laughs) wouldn't come back on and to tell me that it was done so i kept worrying that i had missed and every time i would hear like a bump or anything i'd be like are they trying to wake me up (laughs) so that was distracting um, I also get the, the leg twitches. RLS, like restless leg syndrome? Yeah. yeah. Every time I was sort of dozing off, and I was actually trying to fall asleep. I was seeing, I wanted mm. to see if my back would relax if I just fell asleep. <laughs> <laughs> but the the twitching was extremely bothersome because mm. every time it was just a tiny twitch, it would be like, wave! <laughs> yeah, yeah so I noticed that, that too. was distracting. Um, and then a couple of times the condensation from the top of the pod dripped on me and it was really oh, cold. Really? <laughs> yeah, that never happened to me. Yeah. But overall, I thought it was really interesting. I thought that spending 90 minutes in the dark would be horrible and I would be like 
So one of my first thoughts was, hey, there's a little shelf here and my phone is water resistant. I can bring my phone in. (laughs) I didn't, but I thought about it. Good for you. Yeah, but the time actually passed a lot faster than I expected. The funniest part for me was when I I was sort of at the end, I was kind of splashing around, seeing what it felt like if I, if I made waves on purpose. And then I thought to myself, you know, I'm kind of done with this. So I, I told myself, okay, I can see how much time is left now. So I opened the pod, reached for my phone, and it was exactly 90 minutes had passed. <laughs> and then the music came on. <laughs> One of the cool things that I experienced is, uh, I mentioned earlier that you know how you'd occasionally like bump against the side with your toe or your or your elbow mm-hmm. or whatever. Yeah. Occasionally, I, that would happen to me, and I would go to push off and then realize that my foot wasn't pushing against anything. Yeah, it was just it was a phantom <laughs> sensation. Yeah. Like, oh I, really? Uh, so that is, I, I guess, a tactile hallucination in a, in, yeah. in a sense. Uh, so I didn't actually bump against, but my toe definitely felt that pressure oh see but no i think what was happening for me anyway was when when a piece of my body would touch the side i would be like okay i'll just leave it there for a second and then i would go to push off and it wasn't there but i think i actually just floated away a little bit but i didn't notice it because the last thing i felt was touching the wall and i like i thought it was still there i'm pretty sure that for me that wasn't the case because there was there was a case where my left toe like i felt it touch there and um, as I went to push, I felt my right shoulder touch the side. So unless I had spun, because really yeah, I went diagonal a few yeah. times though, so I don't mm-hmm. know. There was one point where I realized because you have the option to have these like new age kind of soft neon lights. I didn't. Uh, I mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> I immediately turned those off like yeah. right away because I'm like, no, I want I want the real thing, not the <laughs> not the. Uh, and so it was it was pitch black. But I did realize at one point that I wasn't sure whether my eyes were open or not. Mm, mm. Yeah. And so I blinked. I very consciously blinked a bunch of times. And I couldn't tell the difference, light-wise, mm-hmm. between open and closed, which was neat. But I definitely heard my blink very loudly. Mm. Really? Part of yeah. that is, like, the earplugs, probably. Uh, but... It was it, like it was this scritch scritch. Like it sounded weirdly <laughs> alien, like a like a character in a film board short. Yeah. I felt the same. Not about the blinking, because uh, I kept my eyes mostly closed, even though I did test it. But I could hear my heart beating from almost the moment I shut the door. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I spent a good while touching the. Uh, for our listeners, I've got a mohawk right now, and I've got mm, about two millimeters of hair on the sides of my head. And touching those underwater in a sensory de- deprivation tank with the earplugs in was just loud. It was, sounded like somebody like scritching a record. Mm-hmm. That's funny. I uh, I cracked my knee at one point, and that was a disturbing sound. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I, I uh, my my big toes crack. Mm. Uh, I have uh, osteoarthritis in my in my toes, uh, so I like flexed my my feet, and I heard. Like, it was very loud from the opposite end of the tank. So for any uh, listeners that go to try this, my one piece of advice is don't screw up the earplugs. Um, (laughs) They give you these wax earplugs that are supposed to form a seal over your ears. uh, And I had forgotten them when I got into the tank. And so I was like, oh, crap. So I got out and I grabbed them off the shelf and went to put them in. But my fingers were damp. So when I put them in, it didn't form a seal. And so for the first probably half hour of the float, all I heard was glug. 
Oh. As they slowly, my ears slowly filled with liquid, and finally I just ripped them out. I was like, clearly these are not doing anything. And today I have two ear infections, yay. Oh. But totally my fault. They told me to use the earplugs, and I screwed it up. That was not their fault. I did try uh, meditating in there, like do, just doing a bit of mindfulness of breath, mm-hmm. uh, and I found it impossible. Really? Yeah, and I don't know if it was because I was stuck like in this cataloging, I need to pay attention to <laughs> mm-hmm. everything that's going on around me mode, uh, or because it was distractingly like quiet and I had no input, but yeah, I wasn't able to really get anything going at all. Yeah. I was able to. Yeah, but I did we meditate a lot of, every night. I did a lot of like just paying attention to the breath mm-hmm. in and out and but yeah, we're on like 140 days or something of yeah. meditating every night so oh, nice. <laughs> one thing i did think about was that minus 10 decibel room thinking if i can handle this maybe i might be able to handle that mm, yeah the room that is so quiet that it makes people freak out you can hear your own blood whooshing in your body no i haven't, I haven't <laughs> oh yeah that. it's yeah. like a it's so it, perfectly sound blocked that there's zero sound in there except for you and apparently that's really disturbing to a lot of people hmm. <laughs> well, the longest anybody's ever sat in there is like 30 minutes and I would really want to try it because I want to beat that record. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have a actually a, it's almost healed now, but I've got a, like a bruised rib. I did notice when I got out. I'm like, oh, my rib didn't hurt at all when I was in mm. there. Started okay. started up again shortly thereafter. But. Yeah. yeah, I thought my skin was really soft after. Yeah, it felt felt really nice. Even tenderized yeah. and soft. <laughs> Pretty slimy in there. But I mean, overall, I think it was a nice experience. I think it was really expensive for what it was. Yeah, it was like, what, 70 bucks a person? Yeah. We were supposed to get a discount, but we didn't end up getting that discount. Yeah, it's something I'm glad I did, Mm -hmm. but I wouldn't do again. Mm -hmm. I would do it if it was free. I would, you know, it's nice and relaxing. I would go. If somebody bought me a gift certificate for Christmas, totally do it. Mm -hmm. Would I ask for a gift certificate for Christmas? No. Yeah, or I might pay ten dollars, but I wouldn't pay seventy. Obviously, it's not reasonable for them to charge something so cheap as ten dollars no, yeah, because yeah. they couldn't They're, afford it. Yeah. But the the experience is not really worth it for me either. Mm-hmm. It is it is cheaper than a massage for the time. Uh, I rarely, very rarely get a massage because I don't like other people touching me. That's why I've never <laughs> had one. <laughs> but uh, uh, but yeah, I definitely I definitely felt that way uh, afterward too. That mm-hmm. that kind of excessively kind of heavy, relaxed feeling. So yeah, that was a cool experience. Yeah. Something that a lot of podcasts are doing right now uh, is uh, this thing called Tripod. So I'll quote from NPR here. During the month of March, the hosts of hundreds of shows will encourage listeners to introduce a friend, relative, or co-worker to a new podcast and show them how to listen if they don't know how. Listeners will be asked to share stories of why they listen and their favorite podcasts using the hashtag tripod on Twitter and Facebook. There are lots of people who don't listen to podcasts at all, so uh, this would be a good month for you to talk to your friends or family members, coworkers, etc., who don't listen to podcasts about why you like listening to podcasts. And uh, you might want to suggest your favorite podcast produced by the Winnipeg Skeptics, uh, or perhaps your favorite podcast produced by somebody else. I figured that while we're in the month of March, we might as well talk about some of the podcasts that we like other than our own. 
Uh, one that you, if you enjoyed this episode, you will particularly enjoy is a, one of my favorite podcasts, Ono, oh Ross, and Carrie. Uh, yeah, I definitely felt like we were, <laughs> yes. we were ripping off Ono, oh Ross, yeah, and Carrie. Yeah, and they've done um, a flotation pod episode before, and they've also undertaken such subjects as Scientology. And, Where they uh, became Scientologists. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, they've also tried various like ghost hunting and communal meditation. Yeah, uh, ear candling. So the whole gamut of things. Some of them work, some of them don't. Uh, but they are two very funny people and they try lots of things. Your candling does not work. Don't try it. It is very dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just to be clear. <laughs> so yeah, oh no, Ross and Carrie. I think our listeners uh, have probably heard me plug most of these shows before, but 99% Invisible, obviously, it's one of the most popular podcasts in existence, so you don't need me to tell you why you should listen to it, but it's a podcast about design and the hidden aspects of design in everyday life. It is really great. It's and Roman on... Mars's voice is, like, super seductive. Yeah, yeah, that man has a sexy voice. I've also been really enjoying On the Media lately, which is mm -hmm. a, uh, a weekly podcast about how the media reports the news. And it, so it is part news show, part, you know, the media always loves to talk about the media. And this is a podcast that's kind of all about that, but it's about a lot more. Yeah, Jim uh, was posting about this earlier this month and I started listening to it. It was very good. Uh, as far as uh, skeptical podcasts go, we've got some Canadian skeptical podcasts that you might not have heard of. Uh, most of our listeners probably are aware of the Reality Check. So our friends over in uh, in uh, Ontario uh, put on this show that's uh, weekly. It's a shorter show than ours, uh, and they tackle uh, a few different topics each each week. So you can find them at trcpodcast.com. There's also uh, Left at the Valley, which is a humanist podcast out of Fraser Valley in BC. I think it's in BC. Uh, that's where Fraser Valley is, anyway. Yeah. And uh, there's also the Brainstorm podcast, which is a skeptical podcast out of Saskatchewan that you might want to check out. Oh, yeah. uh, in fact... I might drop in some promos for those shows right here. <laughs> I know we shouldn't have to scream that we're atheists. You know, we don't have non-astrologers and all that. But with the religious people taking over the world, I mean, we can either speak up or be pushed into a corner. I'm proud to be an atheist. What happens when you're an atheist living in the Canadian Bible Belt? If you're like me, you gather some friends and you take to the airwaves. So I invite you to come and join us every week to take a left of the valley and find out where you stand in this world. Follow us on iTunes, YouTube, Spreaker, Blog Talk Radio, or SoundCloud, or leftofthevalley.com. Atheist, skeptic, and humanist radio, no God required. Faith in God is like a virus, so why would I respect it? The line between good and evil gets blurred once infected. The truth do you know where Saskatchewan is? Probably not. It's in Canada. If you do, you might know a city named Regina. In Regina, there's a studio. And in that studio, there are, at least once a month, a bunch of skeptical atheist geeks and goofballs who get together to do a podcast. We are the Brainstorm Crew, and we're trying to help spread a bit of reason and critical thinking while still having fun. Never taking things too seriously, but still not accepting everything we're told, we go through different topics, exploring them in depth, and often disagreeing. We try to stick to provable facts, and we never trust a myth. That's why we say we're woo-free since 2000. 2013. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Spreaker under Brainstorm, or check out our website, brainstormblog.net. I can't promise you'll always agree with us, but I can promise you'll have fun listening to us. I'm a big fan of the True Crime uh, podcasts. Ashlyn and I like to listen to them together. We've been listening to Undisclosed. Mm -hmm. They're on their third season now, which is about the um, Freddie Gray. The killing of Freddie Gray. The killing of Freddie Gray. 
in Baltimore. Um, Somebody Knows Something, it's done by the CBC. Mm -hmm. It's about uh, missing and murdered people in Canada. My Favorite Murder, it's fun, it's wacky, it's done from a female perspective on murder. It's taking it back. It's very interesting. NPR politics, of course, because everything south of the border both scares and fascinates me at the time. Mm. Um, and I'm always a fan of the Night Vale podcasts. Uh, yeah. uh, Night Vale, Alice Isn't Dead. I, I still can't get over it, and I'm waiting for season two. I love Welcome to Night Vale and Alice Isn't Dead. I like even more. I yeah. thought we were picking one each. Why would you think that? <laughs> I go through spells of listening to a lot of podcasts and then not listening to podcasts and then having to catch up. Hmm. So. And Mark doesn't listen to anything because he's a Luddite. <laughs> <laughs> No, it doesn't I, taste things. <laughs> <laughs> I find that when I listen to a podcast, they'll hit on a topic, and then I'll start thinking about that topic mm. and focus on it. And then 10 minutes later, it's like, oh, crap, what were they just saying? I have to rewind it all the time just to go back to hear the part that I zoned out on. Mm. So it's not really the best medium for me to... Well, listeners may remember from our Skepticon podcast that Mark is a robot who doesn't listen to the radio when he drives 16 hours across the country. So I guess this shouldn't surprise me. (laughs) There was a Dean Koontz book about that. I still can't believe you don't listen to anything on the road. That just doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, Non-skeptically themed stuff. I really love The Greatest Generation, which is a Star Trek podcast. Radio vs. the Martians uh, and Waypoint Radio uh, are also great podcasts. And Politicoast, if you're in BC and you like politics, is a a good uh, show as well. This is a great time to remind our listeners that we need their help. We always love a good iTunes review. It's the best way to encourage us to keep doing this show. But if you enjoy listening to LUEE or any other podcast, March is a great month to tell your friends and your Twitter followers about it using the hashtag TryPod. T-R-Y-P-O-D. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Or whatever the meat space equivalents of hashtags are. I don't interact with my fellow humans in person anymore. Um, (laughs) When you do, you make them record for five hours. (laughs) It's only been four Thanks for joining me tonight, everybody. Night. Good night. You've been listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. If you have any questions or comments, or you'd like to suggest a topic for the show, send us an email at lueepodcast at winnipegskeptics.com. If you want to show your support, give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter or Facebook, or just share the show with a friend. Our music is produced by the very talented Ian James. And this episode was edited by Jem Newman. super long and you can do all kinds of wacky shapes with them. They're really long and bendy and I can do anything with them. (laughs) Okay, well that's a good note to start on. On today's episode, we taste the rainbow. (laughs) (laughs) Laura's not on this episode, but I still got the biggest eye roll. (laughs) Uh, So that would be the sense of uh, um, uh, you got me caught caught in a loop there for a second. Before we move on to, uh, before we move on to talking about taste, uh, before we move on to talking about any of the senses, so Mark is going to tell us about our sense of taste. Oh no, there's Lauren. Okay. Hmm. Hmm. I.
Sorry, future Jim, who's editing this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Just a minute here. Uh, sorry, this... You have a lot of notes. And they didn't have uh, the Asian factor in there. I'm just picturing Joe Rogan just shows like old white people, <laughs> like a- Asian people, and they go, ah! <laughs> Booba sounds very re- like how you think of like Mickey Mouse is more maternal because he's got the rounded ears. And this is going into Freudian with Bugs Bunny's got the phallic ears. <laughs> what are you talking about? Bugs <laughs> well, Bunny's the one who always dresses up as a woman. Yeah. It was individuals on the island of Tenerife? 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 So, Ashlyn, why don't you tell us all about how those Greek synesthetes couldn't associate the color blue with anything? Right, that's another segment I'm doing. (laughs) Uh... Dave Whatever. likes the toothpaste and orange juice thing. <laughs> that gives you an insight into the kind of like weirdo he is. <laughs> uh, another example, because I find it hilarious. When we were at Penzik, there was like a, a one of those gallons of squeezy cheese and a gallon of chocolate sauce beside each other in one of the shops just because they had both things. And they were offering nachos. And he said, <laughs> is it an option to get both? <laughs> Anyway, you can cut that out if you want. I will say, chocolate and mozzarella on pizza is really good. Oh, dessert pizza. Really good. Actually, just today, I asked him to make me uh, a grilled cheese sandwich, and I said, I also want chocolate, but not at the same time. And he misheard me and heard at the same time, and he said, okay, do you want me to, like, shave it in there? (laughs) He was totally up for it, whatever. Everybody rinse your mouth out. Oh. Oh, God. You guys are all monsters. I'm glad my pain amuses you. I forgot about the misophonia. It's funny because last time I was going to do that and I'm like, no, don't do that. Ashlyn won't like that this time. I just forgot. (laughs) Sorry. Take a sip from cup number one and write down what you think it is. <laughs> Mark, Mark so can't touch that. anything without knocking it over. <laughs> I'm so scared, like, cranberry. I hate cranberries. Yeah.